Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Michael. Yeah? I'm flipping! Michael, I'm flipping! <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I'm flipping, Michael! <laughs> oh, my God. What a different world we've landed in. Uh-huh. Uh, look, oh my god, you, you've got one decorative boot. <laughs> yes, this shows uh, my standing with the queen here mm. here on just straw stuff. And you've got, what a magnificent hat. <laughs> it's, <laughs> this is the, the ZZ Top future, uh, post-apocalyptic future, right? One boot, <laughs> nice hat. Don't worry, because my wallet's fat. What? Uh, join us uh, for another episode of Talking Top with uh, Michael and Cameron, mm-hmm. uh, where we work through ZZ Top's discography. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not this episode. This show is a different show. Uh, it's just King Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. Or in this case... The books of Stephen King and co-author Peter Straub, because today we're talking about uh, The Talisman from 1984. Boy, howdy, are we? <laughs> Prithi, Prithi, thankethi, uh, Kotet. Yeah, uh, the the thing that maybe is most surprising, uh, it, I'll, I'll have to back up a little bit, but like the thing that really like shocked me about this, uh, which is... Um, I think another consequence of like the method of the show of reading and publication order uh, is just seeing how like the entirety of the rest of the Dark Tower books is just in here. Yeah, it's it's distressing, actually. There are pieces of I'll talk about them in light spoiler territory when we get to them later in the episode. Uh, But there are straight up pieces of the final Dark Tower novel in this book yeah like keystone pieces of explanation of like what's going on in the dark tower or just in the talisman and it's not like a re-explanation it's just a recycling of them right it it, it feels like a, a, a prototype yes it absolutely does no i i you know i'm constantly uh extolling the virtues of our own decision uh mm-hmm. Which all great podcasters do, of course. Uh, and uh, but yeah, the method's really paying off here. Um, and, and maybe I'll say, maybe this is a good place to just kind of put it here at the top. You, uh, I, I think maybe what like tw- a million episodes ago. I don't know if I said it on the show, but I had a conversation uh, with a few people and uh, with with uh, Range Touch listener uh, and cool academic uh, Jerry Canavan. 
And we were having a conversation about what are the periods of like Stephen King's thing. Mm-hmm. I think I also talked about this on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally that's like uh, the, the, the big solid books at the beginning, the golden age, the 1980s, right? Where these books start going just absolutely wild. They become like, you know, the doorstops that define American horror. Um, and then, like, uh, w- kind of the weird move into uh, post-addiction years, and then, like, the slow slide into whatever the hell he's doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's, like, maybe a second, like, really powerful bump with, like, Under the Dome and uh, the JFK novel. But, you know, that's the general trajectory that people talk about. And I, this has given me a wholly different, you know, the way we read these books. It's given me a wholly different appreciation now. It really is... Uh, Science fiction, Stephen King. Realist novel, Stephen King. Where, like, it were like and I'm thinking of, like, uh, uh, Cujo here, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, here's a bad situation. Here's how it could play out. Mm-hmm. Right. And the supernatural elements are almost like uh, you could ignore them, right? The story could work without the the implied supernatural, like, very, very vague, faint background stuff. Yeah, and they are they are definitely, as you just said, they're mostly implied, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like visions of the you know alternate futures, whatever, right? Uh, but and then what we get here now that we're getting into it is just fantasy Stephen King, mm-hmm. and I, the eighties is going to be dominated, I think, basically up to misery, right? Uh, with fantasy Stephen King, um, because it is a fantasy novel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, and uh, we've got drawing of the three coming up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. which is uh, another kind of fantasy novel. <laughs> and so is Thinner. I mean, Thinner is a, you know, I, there's a lot of, we're going to get into it in the episode, I'm sure, and there's this kind of racial backdrop to it that informs the whole thing, but it is functionally a fairy tale, mm-hmm. right? It, it is a don't you wish you hadn't done that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it literally involves a curse, right? So, like, these are all just straight up. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, what I talked about so much in some of the earlier episodes is like, holy shit, Steve is a science fiction author and no one talks about it. And uh, the, the I guess the thing that's interesting here is that the most popular Stephen King is just a straight-up fantasy author that has horror elements in it, obviously, mm-hmm. that informs all of this stuff. I mean, these two genres are uh, tightly bound up in one another for him. But he just drops a lot of the science fiction, and that's kind of like what dominates the entirety of the 80s, basically until we get to Tommyknockers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and Misery goes back to the more realist mode. Uh, so he's like dipping back, I guess, over the next 10, 15 years. We're going to see him dip back into some previous modes, but I don't think he's going to do any new modes that I can think of. Um, I, he's kind of got the whole toolkit. By the time we are here in the Talisman, the whole Stephen King toolkit is out in front of us. I can't think of any books that are going to truly be a big swerve for us going forward. My instinct is to agree with you, sort of thinking forward. Uh, obviously, there's a point at which I stop reading, but um, I think you're right that there are kind of these uh, these positionalities that King will take up. Um, depending basically on what type of story he wants to write, right? There's mm-hmm. like, because I looking forward, I can see like, oh yeah, here's like he's doing a science fiction novel again, right? When we get to something like Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. um, versus uh, something like The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which is uh, a, a one of the it, it's like Cujo in that it's kind of playing between like realism and like supernatural stuff going on, um, but also in in many ways has kind of a structure of a fable or a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, I, I think like basically King's got his genres on lock now. And now from here forward, maybe he's just kind of mixing and matching. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild to, to kind of see the whole picture in front of you. One thing I will add, because these this is the, the period that I haven't read into. I have the sense that actually uh, crime novelist Steve uh, becomes a little more ascendant after like 2008 or so. Yeah, I guess that's true. We haven't read a crime novel, but we have read some of his short stories that are just him doing those genres. Yes. Um, but yeah, you're right that, you know, like Quitter's Inc. Mm -hmm. is very similar to what he's got going on in the crime novels. And uh, uh, oh, what was the uh, well, it doesn't matter. But yeah, I think you're right. We we have not gotten a crime novel mm -hmm. um, like the in what the stuff he's doing right now, which is kind of like jack reacher style thrillers mm -hmm. um you know that those two things are bound up i think for him but uh so yeah i guess that's true but so we, we've got the next uh, unfortunately we only have the next 30 years <laughs> of, of his work um kind of locked in but yeah it's it's pretty pretty notable mm -hmm. to to read the talisman like you were saying right that so much of the dark tower is here so much of just the next few books so much of it is already in here just mm -hmm. to be honest I, this really feels like a first swing at writing it in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's it's kind of weird to kind of crest a hill. And I don't feel like we are looking at, you know, uh, somewhere we haven't been before for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be him, you know, in some cases being really better at doing these things. And often it's going to be him being quite worse, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Well, but uh, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Speaking of better and worse, uh, what is your kind of history with the talisman? Like, do you have memories of it oh. and your experiences, like having read it or trying to read it? Because I can talk yeah. about mine. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll give a really brief one. Okay. Um, a lot of people were very excited that we did Eyes of the Dragon. And a lot of people tweeted hey, I'm so excited they're doing Eyes of the Dragon. And then I did not see a follow-up tweet from any of those people <laughs> about, wow, we, we felt the same way as they did about Eyes of the Dragon. Mm -hmm. And that's because, because you didn't care for that book, and I was uh, lukewarm on it. Uh, apologies to everyone who really enjoys that novel. Or not. Uh, you know, it's, it's whatever. People can like different books. Uh, but I'm I'm feeling like we're going to have a similar experience here with the talisman. Um, but I but I'll say that I'm probably in that camp with those people in this case, uh, and maybe I was with Eyes of the Dragon too. But I read this as you know a, a teen tween or an in between, mm -hmm. and a and I thought it was awesome. Mm -hmm. And as I began reading this book, and and I think I read it maybe one time. Uh, it was not a Stephen King book. I went back to mostly because it's so damn long. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was like Jesus. Uh, and so, uh, so I didn't really go back to it. And I sat down to read this book, and I was like, Oh yeah, we're gonna get into it. Stephen Peter, here we go. Stephen Pete, we're gonna make it happen. And as I began reading this book. I realized that, one, I didn't remember a single thing that happened in it. I just had, like, this weird affective ghost memory of enjoying it. And two, I, I think I discovered why I didn't read it again. Which is <laughs> <Just>, that it's bad. <laughs> it's, it is a book that is full of interesting flavors and, like, really cool stuff. It's kind of like Eyes of the Dragon in that way. Bunch of cool ideas. Execution. Very poor. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sent you this message, and we'll kind of work through this. I think this is the worst book we've read. 
I think this is worse as, as far as my enjoyment, you know, not as, as far as writing is concerned or like style or anything like that, where this is like two talented writers really flexing their muscles for sure. I, I'm in no way saying the artistry here isn't working. But as far as my enjoyment, as far as watching these two men kind of basically do wheelies and like pump their fists <laughs> up and down for like the most awful things that humans can do to each other. Um, you know, they're really, they're trying to one-up each other in, like, weird exploitation, violence, and, uh, danger and awful things that can happen to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but the primary character is, like, a 12-year-old boy, and the cast of characters that he runs into who are overwhelmingly innocent and good and not deserving of things that happen to them. And so it's a very, I, I, I think this is what we were talking about, too. It's a cruel novel, extremely mm-hmm. cruel um, and so that's that's all to say. My history of it was really enjoying it, but not having a good sense of what that meant. And then maybe I have just like uh, you know um, false memoried that into my brain mm-hmm. uh, of enjoying it. I will say I do remember enjoying Black House a whole lot, mm-hmm. and I have really specific memories of why I enjoyed Black House. And so maybe I have just transposed that. That mm-hmm. oh yeah, I really like Black House, and so then therefore I must have really liked the Talisman. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's my history with it. Right, right at one time. Thought I really loved it. Read it the second time. Did not love it. In fact, really did not love it. <laughs> so uh, very similar to you, but also very uh, characteristic for me. Uh, uh, likewise, with the previous book, Eyes of the Dragon, <clears throat> I think maybe uh, uh, people took the overall vibe of that show as being maybe more negative on that book uh, than really was deserved because I hate fantasy so much. Like, I need to underscore that. I've said it so many times on the show already, but like fantasy as a genre or particular types of fantasy are so off putting and boring to me um, that I think like the gravity of it. Right. Like you kind of got stuck in my gravity. Well, where people, I think, came away thinking even you like uh, uh, disliked that book more (laughs) than you did Mm -hmm. because (laughs) I dislike fantasy so much. And I can I uh, can can explain this via a metaphor. Yeah. Are all of our uh, listeners will be familiar with because they're all this type of type of person. Mm hmm. It's like I'm kicking a field goal from 25 yards. Easy. Sink it every time. But Michael, when you read a fantasy book, you're trying to kick a field goal from 90 yards. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm just making sure that everyone understands. You know, I was trying to find like a good metaphor that everyone uh, who listens to the show would understand and empathize with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People are always telling us we need to talk about field goals more. Exactly. Uh So uh, what I said in the previous episode was Eyes of the Dragon was the uh, worst book that I felt like I'd read for this show thus far. I really didn't enjoy it. Um, And I was a fool, Cameron. I was an absolute (laughs) and utter fool (laughs) because Eyes of the Dragon, even if it's like, oh, young adult fantasy, uh, whatever, it is so much more preferable uh, to what is happening here. (laughs) Um. And my history with this book is that I remember it it was one of the books I tried to read early on in my Stephen King career um, after I uh, I think I had read it, I think, at that point, maybe a couple of others, because it was one that was in my local library. And I was like, well, this is co-written. That's interesting. I want to know what it's like when Stephen King co-writes a book with someone. And it turned out, uh, according to like 12 or 13 year old Michael, however old I was at the time, uh, it seemed really boring 
And I remember the moment it became clear that this was going to be a fantasy novel and not really a horror novel, I stopped reading it and put it like returned it to the library. So I only uh, actually read it for the first time later on, just before the sequel Black House that you mentioned came out. And I read it so I would have like the context for it being the sequel. Uh, and the reason I wanted to read the sequel was because uh, it, it was being positioned and marketed Black House was as uh, critical to kind of the Dark Tower thing. Um, and even though I did not really like the Dark Tower like big picture, uh, I think at that point it was also already kind of on the table or being whispered that Stephen King was going to retire when he finished the Dark Tower. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I remember that. And so my kind of uh, thought was like, well, I've been reading this guy for the past, you know, four or five years or whatever. And now his career is ending with like his big magnum fantasy opus. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. Right. Like I might as well kind of like see this thing through to the end as it's kind of happening. And so I forced myself to read The Talisman, which I finished. Uh, and I remember not really enjoying again because it was fantasy and kind of boring and uh, it, it just wasn't my type of thing. And also like you, I remember actually later on reading black house and really enjoying black house. Um, there's, there's quite as similar to you again, there's like very specific things I remember about black house and that I like, um, so coming back and rereading it this time, it was sort of, uh, astonishing to me how I, it's almost like, uh, uh, the fantasy stuff here is really the least inoffensive in, in its way to me now. It's like uh, the fantasy is like, OK, like, yeah, we've got like it, it's almost like this is a fantasy kind of setup that's maybe uh, uh, it's good for me. Right. It's not like totally yeah. other world like uh, sort of fairy tale fantasy. It's a portal fantasy. It's dual world fantasy. Um and I'm interested in that. But the actual book itself is just so miserable. <laughs> Uh, absolutely 100 yeah the i i think the fantasy here like if you cut out what happens in the novel (laughs) you know the plot and the events in sequence the the setup is awesome Mm -hmm. right so you know and maybe immaculate big concept big big concept okay there's two worlds right Mm -hmm. there's our world and there's a fantasy world that's kind of layered underneath it you can pop back and forth between some people can pop back and forth between them. And there's like some stuff, some goop that one could use. Uh, if, even if you don't have the natural capability to just do it. Uh, but if you practice hard enough and you imagine enough and you work at it, anyone could theoretically do it. Some people, uh, the population over there is, uh, much smaller because the landmass is much smaller because it's kind of like a pocket version of our universe. Mm -hmm. So like, the distances don't work. So if you if you move one foot in that world, you move ten feet in our world, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of like mismeasure uh, between the two different worlds, and so that allows for, for example, in this novel, uh, Jack to travel across the United States by going to this fantasy world and traveling across the like fantasy world. Okay, mm-hmm. great. There's this additional cool layer, which are twinners, which is that in the fantasy world, some people have an equivalent. And when you go into that other world, you turn into that. You kind of in- inhabit that equivalent, um, which means that uh, there are kind of two different people. So, for example, the bad guy, uh, the villain, he has like a, a evil mage over there, and he's like an evil businessman here. So he gets to like pop back and forth and have two different power sets mm-hmm. that he like you know fights the uh, the good guy with, right? Jack, our, our protagonist. 
Some people don't. And also, some people, their twinner has been murdered, or they're not dead. So when they pop back and forth, they're the only version. So they kind of carry themselves with them as opposed to inhabiting two different bodies with, like, two different consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a cool setup. And then there's, like, a bunch of fantasy shit, right? So there's, like, a different world, and there's, like, guys with crossbows and swords and the king and the queen and blah, 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 right? All mm-hmm. that that uh, fantasy shit. Uh that is cool. Everything what I just said is like a fun setup for a novel. It makes it work. It's like kind of Narnia-esque, and that gets played on quite a bit. But also it has this kind of, um, you know, for, for people now, uh, games of, Game of Thronesianism, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's politics and they're serious and people get murdered. And, and it is idyllic in the sense that like all the berries taste better and the air is sweeter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not idyllic in the sense that, you know, there are... Uh, political machinations and maneuvers that are made that are almost more cruel than the world that we live in because, you know, life is nasty, British and short or whatever Hobbesian nonsense you want to adopt into your fantasy world. So, like, big picture, great, mm-hmm. awesome. The map in that territory, looking cool. Mm-hmm. But, in fact, <laughs> what what one does with that in this novel or what, in fact, two ones do with that in this novel uh, is what I would call capital N, capital C, not cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, we can, uh, like, that's uh, conceptually, listener, if you haven't read along, uh, that's kind of what's going on here. I'll get to a summary in just a little bit. But uh, first, I also want to, like, tell you a little bit about Peter Straub, who's the other guy who who wrote this thing. Um, now, Cameron, uh, just to start out, uh, who do you think came up with the idea for this story and how? Probably Peter Straub. Uh, and and the reason I say that is that he was less famous than Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it seems like all of Stephen King's collaborations, this is not to be uncharitable, this is not to be mean, mm-hmm. but it is Stephen King and someone less famous than him. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of easy to do, I guess. I, I don't say, know like, who's more famous than Stephen King. Like, uh, Steve would really have to reach to... <laughs> Yeah, or maybe like cross genres in a weird way, like Stephen King meets John Grisham or something. Oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah, nine hundred pages <laughs> of legal drama, and you would learn about like uh, someone would always be eating like a Snickers bar. You'd learn about all the food for some reason that that the lawyers <laughs> ate in the car. Um. Anyway, I'm sorry. So uh, no, I don't know. You tell oh. me who who came up with this. Uh. So according to Straub, it was Steve. Wow. Um, it was apparently Were they drunk in a bar. Yeah, uh, I, I uh, read a couple of interviews um, with Straub uh, and he said so there were two kind of versions that I got. Um, one was that and I think like there are versions that could be melded. Right. I think there may be like two uh, aspects of the same kind of like Steve talking to Straub and being like, hey, here's an idea. Mm. Um, Some sort of twinner story. Yeah. Uh uh, the first thing that I read said that it was an old story idea of King's. Um, and specifically, it was about, uh, sorry to like encroach on my own summary, I'm going to give a little bit later, but about a, a, a young boy who has to go on a quest to save his dying mother. Um, uh, the other thing that Straub said in a different interview that I was reading was that it was a dream Stephen King had had. Um which is interesting. He doesn't say more about that. And there's nothing that I could find where King was kind of elaborating on this point. Uh, but it's one of those things that I can kind of see uh, because I think like the, the the climax or the end of this 
novel, like when they're in the the black hotel, uh, that does feel like very dreamlike in a way that uh, I don't know. Like if I had to pick a part of this story that like had its seed in a dream that Stephen King had, I feel like it would be that. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the story here, Peter Straub is uh, an author. Uh, you know, contemporary to King. Uh, he starts out as a kind of mainstream literary novelist uh, at about the same time that King is getting Carrie published. Um, and actually, I think Straub publishes before uh, King by, by a couple of years. Uh, and I think he writes maybe one or two sort of traditional liter- literary realist novels. Um, something you should know about Straub in terms of his background, he is from uh, the Midwest, He's from uh, uh, Wisconsin. Um, He is the son of kind of a a working class family. Uh, His father was a a Lutheran minister um, and really wanted him to become a minister as well. But uh, Straub kind of uh, doesn't want that. He he has more of an artistic inclination. Uh, Straub strikes me as the sort of person who wants to be a writer. And so he goes out and he tries really hard and he becomes a writer. Uh, through kind of, you know, sheer persistence and study or whatever. Um, this is going to tie into some of the other sort of like key Straub things. Uh, but uh, at about the time that Stephen King publishes Carrie, it seems like uh, American publishing gets really interested in uh, science fiction horror novels. Right. Um, and I think maybe sort of by coincidence, at about this same time, Straub is writing his novel Julia, uh, which is a ghost story novel. Um, and King ends up writing about this novel specifically in, in Dan's Macabre. I, we talked a little bit about Straub back then. And in fact, he talks about several of Straub's books. Um, the particular horror novels that had been written at that time were Julia, if you could see me now and ghost story. Um, and all of these are kind of like variations on ghost story tropes. Uh, mm-hmm. Straub tends to go into other directions after this, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But at some point, somehow, like, uh, uh, Steve and Peter meet. Like, they strike up a correspondence, or uh, they get to know each other. And then in the uh, late 70s, uh, maybe 79 or, like, 1980, thereabouts, uh, the Kings move to uh London for a little bit. I'm not quite sure why this is happening. Uh, it's a thing that I've seen in, in the biography before. I don't know if like they just did it because they kind of had the money and the opportunity. So they went and they lived in, in uh, London for a little bit. Um, well, it's a, kind of like the Colorado trip too. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because they ended up in Colorado for what, nine months or something? Yes. Wow. Right. It, it feels maybe similar to that. Um, mm-hmm. And it happens that Peter Straub and his wife are also in London at this time. And so the, the the Straubs and the Kings start like having dinner together and hanging out. Uh, the Kings don't like London as much as the Straubs do. And so they end up leaving pretty early. But in the time that they're there, uh, uh, Straub and King are like, hey, we should write a book together. And King uh, puts forth this idea for what's going to become the talisman. And they kind of like, you know, throw it back and forth. And uh, as Straub tells it, right, he was kind of like, oh, you that's your idea. Well, here's all the things you could do with that and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um then uh, the the kings go back to the United States, uh, and I think a couple of years pass before the Straubs and uh, the Straubs and the kings kind of meet up again. Uh, and at this time, uh, the kings are back in Maine. They have the Straubs over for like the summer or something, right, or a couple of weeks during the summer. At which point, Straub and King start writing the book, um, and they write the beginning together. 
uh, kind of the first chunk or first part. So let's just say, you know, something like the first 50 pages or whatever. Um, and that's that's uh, Peter and Steve like working together writing. Uh, mm-hmm. Then uh, the Straubs go back to uh, wherever they were living at the time and they've kind of moved around a bit. So I'm not sure where they were. Um, but this is an interesting detail. Uh, these are both guys who can write a lot. <laughs> Uh, and they didn't want to, uh, understandably, they didn't want to like wait to like mail each other like 200 manuscript pages at a time, because this is this was kind of the pattern they worked out as they wrote the beginning together, and then they were going to alternate kind of the middle part. Mm. Um, so this ends up being co written over the internet. Whoa. Yeah, uh, an early, early kind of internet thing where Straub was expl- – it's it's a fascinating interview where Straub explains like, oh, yeah, no, we had like you – know, I, I – you know, neither of us really wanted to use word processors, but this was like the only way that we could kind of like, you know, get uh, material back and forth in, in, a, in a reasonable time frame. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about how like, yeah, no, you would like uh, – t- I would like type up my pages and then I had to go into the kitchen uh, where the telephone was and then I would like dial a certain number – and then that would let the computer send uh, the pages that I had written to Steve's computer, like his complimentary unit up in Maine. Whoa. So do you think do you think it just connected to a printer and just spat it out? Because, you know, like because word processor memory is not enough to hold all this in. I do not know. <laughs> I, I, I really in my mind, that's what it has to be. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I have no way of knowing. But it's like Peter Strop dialing a number and then a printer just starts running <laughs> in Stephen King's house <laughs> and burr, 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 spitting out, you know, dozens of pages of Peter Straub's most uh nightmarish fantasies about what can happen in a fantasy world <laughs> uh so that that happens cool. the the ending of the novel is uh once again written collaboratively so the straubs go and visit the kings again and then uh uh peter and steve like write the ending together and then the editing process uh they they made an outline um during their first meeting also they had kind of an outline of things that they wanted to do the editing process then uh is them like going over the whole thing i think with one of their editors or one of their agents or something um and uh if you can believe it cutting things wow <laughs> right? i can't believe it i cannot believe that anything was cut from this novel. i know <laughs> Uh, uh, but uh, what could it be? What could be cut from the novel? (laughs) Apparently, there was material that got cut that was not uh, uh, as critical as as it could have been. Um, But also, like you know, rewriting things and restyling things. And one of the uh, goals that both writers had was to like they knew that when people were reading this, people were going to be like, "Oh, which are the parts that Stephen King wrote, and which are the parts that Mm -hmm. Peter Straub wrote." And so while they were writing, they were both uh, intentionally imitating one another. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, so when uh, Straub was writing his stuff, he would be like, oh, how would Steve write this? And then he would kind of write it like that. And Steve was like, oh, how would Peter write this? And then he would write it like that. And then they would do that same thing where they were editing, where they would kind of like uh, meld each other's styles together. Um, Just mutually reinforcing bad behavior. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe <laughs> um, uh, uh but that was kind of the goal and so they uh uh get this thing out uh it is published it apparently one thing that i read said that there was actually a big uh like pr campaign behind this book right a promotional campaign oh yeah uh it was like i can't remember it was like the, the half a million dollars or something was spent in marketing uh which is weird because i feel like 
uh, I mean, not it's it's not weird. It's actually very evident why this is the case. But I feel like outside of like people who are really into Stephen King um, or people who are like maybe even really specifically into Dark Tower, uh, mm-hmm. no one really talks about this book. Uh, it, it's kind of a, a weird also ran in that way or that's how it turns out. Um, yeah, I was seeing if I could find maybe like a print ad or something, but mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like it. Uh, but anyhow, right, it, it gets uh, printed, uh, it gets published, um, and I guess it's 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 a good enough experience for both of them that they like collaborate again in the future on Black House. So yeah, I was just actually looking at that. Uh, the <laughs> unfortunately, so this is because someone mentioned this in the Discord, which is why I looked it up. Uh, you know, because there was discussion a while back about them writing a third Talisman book, mm-hmm. and so this is on the Wikipedia page. Um, in mid 2021, in a podcast with Dead Headspace, Peter Straub described as unlikely that he would ever be able to keep up with Stephen King anymore. Therefore, it was very unlikely that he would co-write a third Talisman with Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And that this really gave me a flash to like Peter Straub and Stephen King both sitting in the same active Google Doc, <laughs> and just just Peter Straub watching the page fill up with words <laughs> as Steve is just banging things out as he goes, and he's thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'll never be able to get in." Uh, some kid being brutalized for no reason. Mm-hmm. A, a decapitated person <laughs> with a head flying around. I'll never be able to get that in here with Steve's uh, glossolalia of, of fantasy content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, the uh, that that's sort of the, the situation. Like, they collaborated. It was a good time. They wrote a second book. There has always been whispers of, like, the third book, but it does seem like Straub is maybe... Uh, not as much up to it as as he might have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, some other things about Straub that I think are interesting. Uh, I think I may have said this in the Dance Macabre episode, but one of the reasons I think he catches uh, King's interest is that Straub is an author who uh, is aware of King and responding to him. I think even when they aren't aware, like they, they don't personally know each other. So what I uh, think what I'm thinking of here specifically is Ghost Story which is one that mm-hmm. uh, Steve gives a lot of praise to in Dan's Macabre, um, which is, uh, to my reckoning, right, uh, very much an author who is not Stephen King, seeing uh, how Stephen King novels work and seeing that they're popular and being like, okay, I'm going to do that thing, right? Like, it is, it, a ghost story is, um, it's not my favorite Straub novel, um, but it's interesting because it is so clearly someone being like, I'm going to write a Stephen King novel. Here are the things Stephen King does. Here's how I'm going to do them. Um, mm-hmm. The other Straub novel that's really good for this is uh, Floating Dragon, which uh, I'm just going to shout out because it reads almost like a parody of Stephen King novels. It's <laughs> and, and I think it sort of is right. There's sort of something tongue in cheek about it. It's like, what if every Stephen King novel happened at once? So like. Uh, there's a small town, uh, and on the outskirts of it, there's like a government research facility and there's an accident at the government (laughs) research facility and, uh, a sort of like weird neurotoxin, uh, escapes into the air and like moves out over the town and starts making people like have hallucinations and get sick simultaneous with this. And maybe, uh, like as a cause of what happened at the research facility, uh, there's an ancient evil in the town's past that recurs like every (laughs) 30 
30 years uh and it's like coming around again and all of the like uh descendants of the original founders of the town who include like a washed up movie star a uh nervous housewife um a sort of older intellectual guy and a plucky young boy are being drawn together into this like battle between good and evil uh it's really like it's it's a huge weird mess of a novel and like it it it's fun in my opinion. <laughs> well, and that comes out in 1983, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is before Stephen King is really doing those novels. Yes, like that. Like the not many of the things you just described as like King things are not really here yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least not fully formed. And so it really does seem that uh, one of the critical, uh, I don't know, interlocutors for Stephen King to understand the Stephen King 80s. You have to look to what Peter Straub is up to. Mm-hmm. But all that said, uh, that is not really like I would say what the sum of Straub's career is or what he most often writes mm-hmm. about. Um, and so I reached out to uh, uh, my friend and I guess occasional listener, friend of the show, Brendan Byrne, um, who's kind of a, a bigger Straub fan than I am. Um, we've talked about mm-hmm. Straub pretty frequently and kind of like what his relationship with King is like. And I asked Brendan. Uh, you know, what are what are some Straub things that we should know about some Straub stuff? And he replied uh, in our different seasons episode, uh, we laughed at the idea of Linda Ronstadt being a pinup girl. But in fact, Brendan's father had that exact same poster uh, in, I guess, their den or or I can't remember exactly what he said, but uh, that's what he told me. So there you go. I, that that makes sense to me. Look, I'm 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 in no way uh, saying that Linda Ronstadt did not deserve to be a pinup girl, but in fact, in the line of people that it was with, uh, it was kind of incongruous. But I guess if you are, you know, in uh, going back and putting yourself in the mindset of uh, Andy Dufresne, um, you know, a hot lady's a hot lady when you're when you're hanging out digging that tunnel. <laughs> Spo- spoilers for, uh, for <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption, yeah. Uh, it should have been Linda Ronstadt in the Shawshank Redemption because the redemption occurred under Linda Ronstadt's watch. That is true. It's kind of kind of fucked up, honestly. <laughs> I'm going to write a strongly strongly worded letter to Steve. Uh, uh, but, but for real, in addition to that, uh, Brendan uh, uh, recommended that people uh, check out um, an interview that Straub did with John Langan at uh, Nightmare Magazine. And if you just search interview Peter Straub, Nightmare Magazine. Like John Langan, like the fisherman? Yes, him. Yep. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fisherman, uh, the wide carnivorous sky, I think was his short story collection. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you can check those out or check that interview out. Um, what I really liked about this interview is that even before I had reached out to, to Brendan, even before I had read it, I had compiled my own little list of like Straub stuff uh, just to, to <laughs> name some stuff for the listener. Like here, here are the, in the same way that like certain things tend to recur in Stephen King, here are some things that tend to recur in Peter Straub. Um, and it is wonderful to me that I made this little list and then the interview ends up confirming all of these things. Mm, so, it's always good. Yes. So here are some things that uh, Peter Straub tends to write about uh, uh, with some regularity. Um, a big one is serial killers. Um, and not just like like there are people in Stephen King novels who are, you know, like sadistic and they're murderers and they kind of like go off the deep end. We've talked about this. This is like a model for a Kingian villain, right? The person who just kind of like absolutely loses their shit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Straub, when he writes about serial killers, is clearly much more influenced by like uh, uh, actual true crime accounts and historical uh, uh, actions of serial killers. Um, mm-hmm. There, there's something sort of like grittier and sort of like uh, crime novelier about the way that Straub tends to interface with this uh, issue of serial killers, which comes up again and again. Um, uh, boys' schools. Straub himself uh, was a scholarship student at a boys school, uh, which I think, you know, contributes to kind of um, his class consciousness uh, and and sort of his anxieties about that. Uh, But like so boys schools show up in Straub novels with some regularity, so much so that we technically get two of them in The Talisman. Uh, He also uh, tends to be uh, more self-consciously literary than Stephen King. Uh, so whereas, uh, uh, and we got a question about this on one of the, the question sewer segments, um, someone, uh, wrote in and asked, you know, uh, what is Stephen King doing when, uh, he mentioned, like when he says like Stu Redman re- remembered the time he read Watership Down, um, that's a thing that happens a lot in Stephen King. Uh, other books will show up because characters in the stories will remember that they have read those books or they'll have memories of them. This is like such a, a particular Stephen King thing, I feel like. Um, but that's where King's intertextuality often really like comes to the surface is like people remembering things that they have read. Straub is different. Um Straub will uh, reference other writers, but in a much more, uh, I guess, maybe uh, highfalutin way. So Ghost Story, for instance, has a character uh, named Sears James, uh, and he's one of a group of old men who get together and tell each other ghost stories. That's kind of one of the... This... Sorry. Yeah. Peter Straub's choice of names... Yes. ...is some of the weirdest shit on the planet. (laughs) He... So... He tends to uh, uh, pick names that sound fake. Yes, right? like <laughs> they, they sound like they're made up a hundred percent. He 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 tends uh, toward the more literary metafictional than Steve. Right, that's like mm-hmm. intentional. Yeah. Um, there's something I think to Steve that's just like, nope, story's just a story, and I'm just a yarn spinner, just a tale teller. Uh, but uh, Peter Straub. Um, he has this character named Sears James uh, who tells uh, a ghost story that is a clear kind of uh, like retelling or spin on Henry James's infamous ghost story novella, The Turn of the Screw. And it is presented as a thing that actually happened to that guy, right? It is actually his biography. So we have uh, Henry James, Sears James, uh, and then this character tells like a Henry James story or rather like uh, uh, Peter Strop's version of a of a Henry James story. Um, the other thing then uh, that will happen is that uh, Straub will have connections between his novels in an almost Kingian way. But where, whereas in King, it's all kind of like, oh, this is like this is the same dairy that we saw before or the same Castle Rock or like this is a version of Maine that is very close to uh, but not exactly a version of Maine that we've seen before. And maybe it's because it's like an alternate universe. Peter Straub will do something like. Here is a novel about uh, a bunch of things happening, and here is a minor character in that novel. A few years later, here's a new novel. The main character, protagonist, and narrator of this novel is uh, that sort of like side character from a previous novel. Like they are the same person, they have the same name, Mm. but, but their biographies don't match up. 
right? Um, and there's always kind of, uh, especially if, if a Straub uh, narrator is speaking in first person, um, there is like a 100% chance that that person is not being truthful with the story that they're telling, right? Uh-oh, some sort of unreliable narrator. Right. So, uh, and so Straub tends uh, to lean more into kind of... Uh, Things that are outside of the, the kingy and yarn spinner uh, wheelhouse, uh, which is stuff mm. like uh, and, and this is also drawing off of uh, like people like Henry James. Um, Straub will exper- experiment with things like narrative time, like character memory and like misremembrance, um, kind of the ways that the novel uh, can focalize on particular characters and get inside their heads, but also like, you know, reserve some sort of unknown for them. Um so uh, that's that's kind of another Straub thing, right? A sort of self-conscious literariness and a tendency toward more uh, experimentation. Um, the other thing that Straub really likes, uh, jazz music. Oh, no way. Really? Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are, those are some kind of like little Straub things. And I think they all show up to some degree in the talisman. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, I, I wanted to lay this out here so we can like be able to point back to it, but unless you have other questions or maybe other things to add, I should probably just, uh, get right down to it and summarize this damn novel. What, what let's learn about it. You know, uh, often we're accused of not talking about the thing because we don't want to talk about the thing. And by accused, I mean, I notice when we're doing it. (laughs) I don't think other people do nearly as much. And uh, we have talked for 45 minutes (laughs) about all of the background on the talisman before talking about the talisman because uh, it's not great. But uh, I think we have a lot of interesting things to say about it looking at our notes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's hear your five sentence summary which is the entire plot of the book beginning to the end in five sentences that you are coming up with off the dome right now. Okay. The Talisman is the story of Jack Sawyer, who is a 12-year-old boy whose mother is a fading B-movie actress who is probably dying of cancer. Sentence one. Jack discovers that his deceased father and his father's evil business partner had the ability to access a magical parallel world they called the territories where his mother is the queen and is also dying. And so Jack has to go on a cross-country journey to find a MacGuffin called the Talisman to save her and also save both worlds. That's two. Mm-hmm. Right, you're, basi- you're basically done. Well... <laughs> I don't know what else could be in here. <laughs> I mean, I've got to summarize the whole thing is the, is the thing. Uh, well, I think you've done that. <laughs> Over the next summation of the novel, (laughs) over the next 750 pages, (laughs) a couple of things happen. (laughs) The things that happen are colon. uh, Jack gets forced to work at a bar. Uh, Jack gets stuck at a labor camp for wayward boys. Jack befriends and also causes the death of a werewolf. 
goes to a boys school and takes a long train ride all before eventually arriving on the West Coast and uh, discovering the talisman. After a final standoff, during which he kills his evil fake uncle, uh, Jack recovers the talisman and saves his mother at the end. Yep, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, the entire plot of the talisman is a very thin string to hang basically six events on. Mm-hmm. And each of those events are interminable. Yes. They just keep going. Oh my god, yeah. It, it, this is, yeah, it's, it, what to touch on what we were saying earlier, it is incredible to imagine that stuff was cut from this. I don't know what could, I honestly don't know what you could have cut. If you told me they went and added more, I would believe that. Yeah. That's more likely to me that they sat down and added 200 pages of weird additional information. Like, neither of these men can cut a description or repetition to save their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's this weird thing going on where, like, uh, maybe... 50% of the time it feels like they are uh playing with the idea of the of the twinners or the doubles right we've got the double worlds we've got people who are sort of like repeated or reiterated uh, across those worlds um and then we have like events that sort of uh mirror each other but there's never any sense of like design behind it it's almost like oh here's a like it's, it's what i said like there's there's technically kind of two boys schools here Mm -hmm. Because we have like the the um, labor camp for wayward boys. Uh, and then we also have the actual boys school that uh, Jack goes to right after. And in some way, right, it, it begs for uh, uh, the reading of like, oh, right. These are twinners of each other, but they're like twinners in our world or right They're They're like foils or like, you know, um, um, like counterpoints. Right. In, in kind of like the big tapestry of, of the world of this novel. And mm -hmm. like, eh. Not really. Like I'm, I'm, I'm doing so much more work there than it seems like it it requires because, or it deserves because in in the experience of reading, it's just like, why are both of these things happening? Yeah, they they are just occurring, right? Um, because they are they are excuses to torture the characters of this novel. Um, I, I and I, you know, I I don't want to paint the book into a corner. Because I think thin readings or or maybe uh, motivated readings like that are, are less interesting and certainly not the thing that we tend to do on the show. But, it, you know, over the course of reading this book, as I got like 200, 300 pages in, it became very clear that the vast majority of these situations were not presented because they were inherently interesting ways of working through characters and, and characterization or for talking about the way that Jack develops. Because he honestly doesn't really develop. Mm -hmm. He... He he gets out of where do they start New Hampshire or something? Yeah, they start in, in New Hampshire and they go to uh, uh, was it Point Venuti or something, California? Yeah. Oh, that's right. So so uh, he gets fifty miles down the road and becomes like a young adult man, and we get all this stuff about like and he and he became a little bit tan on the road. This twelve year old boy who was willing to take America by the horns, <laughs> and then he remains unchanged between there and the end of the book, like. He he has gained. He got fifty miles literally down the road and became like a young adult and became a young adult the whole way. Mm -hmm. uh, he does not. I don't think learns very much more about himself. So these are not even like excuses or or kind of like 
mills to turn him into something else. You know, he doesn't become more cruel, really, or he doesn't become more canny. He doesn't get any smarter. Mm -hmm. He just becomes the same guy who's dealing with these different situations in front of them. It feels like a bunch of short stories in some way um, that he that the same character is just running into. And mm-hmm. when you read them all in a whack as a novel, that's not interesting um, in any kind of way, mm-hmm. like developmentally for him as a character. So, so really what stands out is not the, um, w- the way that Jack deals with them, which is how you might think that a fantasy novel like this would work, you know, what, what skills or abilities does he learn to overcome these challenges? What does he learn about himself to overcome the things that are in front of him? No, 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 no. The thing that is novel about each of these situations is that they are different ways to trap him, mm-hmm. and they are explicitly figured as traps. I mean, that's the whole kind of logic of, of the situations he gets stuck in. And uh, they become ways to novelly torture him and then other children. Right. Just straight up. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no more complicated nature to it than that. And it it begins to wear on me as a reader very quickly. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a, a couple of things uh, happening here. One is that like Jack is just Jack is just a perfect little boy, right? He's a golden he's boy. a great, great little boy. What a good little boy, right? And that's how he's he, the only little boy in the universe like him. Literally. Yes. Right. He <laughs> is. And he is so noble that he is going to take on this quest to like save his dying mother, which is like fine. Right. Okay. But like, that's literally like, that's where his character starts. That's where his character stops. Like he is just a good little boy trying to save his mom, uh, through utter misery for 800 pages. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is something we've talked about. Um, and this is like the first bullet that you put in the, in the notes when you were kind of compiling what we want to talk about in the episode, which is that this is a long book in which nothing happens. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there are no, uh, there are plot events that occur, but as far as, like, page length to events that happen, it is something like, I don't know, 150 to 1. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, as far as, like, things that are important occurring, there is so much uh, just uh, word length dedicated to repetition, just re-saying the thing that we already just read, which is infuriating at some points in this novel. And then just spinning it out, just describing more of the bar that they're in, mm-hmm. describing more of the boys' home, learning about new characters in the boys' home who all have their little quirks and qualities, don't you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it, but but really, like, just eventual-wise, what you said in the summary is is true. <laughs> that is that is the exact schematic of the novel, and it's not like something like Cujo or even the Dead Zone, right? The Dead Zone uh, uh, is formally very similar to this. It's a character. He goes through these six or seven events, and they kind of play out, mm-hmm. you know. And it's about how does he deal with those things. But that novel has so much interiority developed to. Uh, the characters, right? And then we get this really interesting thing going back and forth between, I don't remember any of the character names, but uh, <laughs> between uh, Christopher Walking and, and the girlfriend. Yes. Whatever, you know, who is married, right? And we get all of that development. There's nothing of that quality in this novel. It It, it is trying to do a very difficult thing of keeping the flavor of a young adult fantasy novel and the kind of flatness and broadness of characters in that. And then also being the Peter Straub and Stephen King 800-page novel. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a hard thing to do. But uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me, sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but one, one thing that really stuck out to me is how credulous every character is, even when they definitely shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And so there is so much time dedicated to Jack being like, 
So, so novel starts. Jack is hanging out. His mother's dying. Uh, his father has died already, and Morgan Sloat, his uncle Morgan, quote unquote, uh, was his father's business partner who is trying to like seize the final assets, basically, mm-hmm. of the family. They w- they started so- as a talent agency, and uh, uh, Sloat, the the evil uncle, uh, like expanded everything into like all the. All the bad types of business, right? Real estate mm-hmm. acquisition and development and so on. Such a pure 80s villain. Uh, churches, mega churches, <laughs> you, you know, like because uh, that's what uh, what what's his name? Uh, Gardner. Gardner. Yeah. Yeah. Like because he's he's like the most evil version of like um, uh, what Jimmy Baker. Is that that guy's name? Yes, I think so. You know, he, he's so yes, absolutely right. So he gets kind of his like corporate fingers and everything. And so the the setup for the novel is Jack's mother is dying. And Morgan is trying to seize all their final assets to, like, take everything under control because he is also aware of the territories, this fantasy world. And he has a twinner over there, and they are accelerating, like, business development into that world. And they're going to take it over, essentially. And she is the queen. Her twinner is the queen. So there's this kind of battle across two worlds uh, to eliminate her power and to make his ascendant, which is pretty cool. Uh, Jack meets Speedy Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 just a Stephen King racist character. Yeah, he's the the, um, the caretaker of like the off season amusement park near the hotel where Jack and his mother are staying. Yeah, he's just another swing at O'Halloran. Uh, he's a he's or, ha- or or Halloran. I was gonna say O'Halloran Halloran. I've done this before. Halloran. Halloran. Um. Yeah, he's another swing at the Halloran character type, and he has a much wider miss. <laughs> A much wider miss, and honestly, novel-wise, given way less characterization. At least for Halloran, we knew what he was up to. He was, yeah. like, hanging out in Florida or whatever. Yeah, so Dick Halloran had, like, an amount of interiority and, like, a life that he was living. Uh, and he was put upon by this whole thing. Right. Um, Speedy, it literally shows up, like, because he is, he's the, uh, he's the call to adventure for Jack, right? He's the, he's the mysterious man who shows up and he's like, ah, you've got some quest in ahead of you, young man. Um, he obviously Mm -hmm. does not talk like that. Um, No, he has a much more stereotypical and offensive, uh, uh, black American accent. So this is the other thing to highlight then. And I think this also speaks to kind of the weird structural issues that we've been talking about is that this model or yeah, this novel is explicitly modeled on uh, Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> That's the wildest um, thing I've ever heard. Oh, my God. I mean, what the fuck, Steve? Well, Steve <laughs> and Peter, right? Because this is a Peter thing. <laughs> uh, oh, it is because it's knowingly literary. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, I see. I see. I see. Uh, because, yeah. yeah, so they call like they call the other world, uh, the, the parallel world, they call it the territories because very famously yeah. at the end of Huckleberry Finn, because uh, Huckleberry Finn is like a fir- it's written as a first person narrative from uh, 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 Huck's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. He, you know, says he's going to light out to the territories. He's going to leave yeah. the town where he lives uh, and go live in the ter- like the the Western territories at that time. Right. Um and so that's happening. And of course, like uh, Huckleberry Finn is this story of uh, Huck trying to help uh, an enslaved man named Jim uh, escape. Um, and they end up getting on a raft and then sailing downriver, which is I think I've said on the Homestuck show, right? Like the 
this is a comic novel. Like we have a, a uh, like runaway slave uh, who is actually escaping to the South, which is the exact opposite thing you mm. want to do. Um, and so the, the structure of uh, Huckleberry Finn ends up being this kind of like episodic picaresque thing because uh, Huck and Jim get separated and Huck is constantly being like taken on by new people or like finding himself in new situations. He has to wiggle his way out of um, and like it, it's it like that is what that novel is. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Straub and King seem capable of seeing that structure, but not understanding why it works, which to emphasize is like, that's a comic novel. Like it's got dark elements to it. And it get, it has like some amount of like, you know, uh, moral introspection with regard to the issue of slavery. Although it is like still not great on, on the way that it uh, depicts race. Um, but like, like that, that uh, plot structure of like, here's a smart ass little kid who's constantly like falling into trouble and then like wiggling his way out works in the way it does, because it's like this brief comic novel where things are happening at a pretty good clip. It is not an mm-hmm. 800 page fantasy novel where the kid is like a beautiful golden boy who is constantly falling into like these bizarre arbitrary traps of torture. <laughs> Yeah, God, what a just a mismeasure there between intent and outcome. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so so uh, Speedy Parker shows up and is like doing all this stuff, and he probably exists in the territories we don't really know. But he spends a long time trying to convince Jack that he has a heroic destiny, mm-hmm. you know. And he's like trying to convince him this other world exists, and maybe he should get involved. And he's like, Hey, kid, just take it on faith that like your mother's over there. And that, you know, you need to, like, do something about her. And, you know, that, that if you save the queen or you save your mother, uh, both of those things kind of work out, right? You know, uh, save your mom, save the world, as it were. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that takes forever. That takes a million years, it feels like, in novel time. And uh, the uh, uh, then then the, the novel, he goes to his mom and is like, hey... <laughs> There's a fantasy world over there. She's like, all right, cool, whatever. Bye. <laughs> I'll see you later. She's like, deep down, <laughs> like, I always suspected that your father was traveling to a fantasy world when I wasn't looking. Yeah, so like the the kind of speed and maneuvering of this thing, it makes the pacing feel even stranger because there are long, nightmarish times of incredulity. It happens again when he meets up with Richard in Indiana. Mm-hmm. The, just this... In- interminable amount of time of just having to convince people that the basic precepts of the novel are true mm-hmm. right and then once that that is worked through we're like zipping through and there's no more conversation of any of it so it, it, the pacing of it the the structure of it the way that that structure is like moved through the way these characters think about it none of it is like fun and easy and fancy free it is all a slog like an absolute slog uh, but so maybe I say all of that. Maybe we should uh, just talk about the events as they happen and what we thought about them. Because really it is like this is happening. You know, big setup is going. And then we just kind of move through these different examples. And they're all kind of punctuated by um, either either Morgan Sloat. So businessman, evil businessman in the real world. Or his um, uh, uh, his twinner. Uh, Morgan of Oris. Morgan of Oris. What a great name, yeah. by the way. A great fantasy name. Morgan of Oris is great. Uh, so so it's either Morgan Sloat in our world or Morgan of Oris in the uh, fantasy world, like trying to figure things out uh, in his conveyance. We can talk about mm-hmm. his conveyance, too, which is pretty cool. Um, 
or uh, it, so it's kind of like Jack is moving. He gets caught in a little trap. We learn how Morgans, the Morgans are involved in that in some way. And then he escapes it and moves on to another trap. Mm -hmm. That's like the whole shtick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just so happens that every time he gets trapped, it is like uh, somehow directly connect. Even though it like it's not like Morgan is like uh, directly pulling strings in these instances. But every trap he falls into is somehow like tied up in with what the Morgans are doing in either world. Right, real like a threat of fate here. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you know uh, Jack is a little, little golden boy at the center of the whole universe. Yeah, interesting how that works out. So the uh, I guess the first thing is the bar, right? Yeah, the Oatly Tap in like upstate New York, I think. So Jack is uh, he's hitchhiking across. Oh God! You, you get there's uh, so much dedicated to like the minutia of hitchhiking too. He's like telling these stories about his family that are made up, and there's like all this stuff about do people buy it or not, and there's all this like sexual peril as well because uh, he's like a young boy on the road, yeah. and anything could happen to can, him, and that gets like focused in can, on too. Can I just like here at that Please. point? Uh, mentioned sure. like one of the weirdest bit like so the there, there's just like a recurring uh, gay panic throughout this novel that we'll maybe hopefully be able to touch on uh, uh, later um, but also a kind of like tendency toward homoeroticism uh, uh, like very intense relationships between male characters that are kind of like secret from everyone else in the world uh, mm -hmm. that's all going on but like the moment that really like bowled me over here, I think just before the Oatly tap or maybe just after is when uh, Jack talks like Jack just sort of reflects on uh, the fact that, you know, whenever he's getting picked up by uh, when he's hitchhiking and he gets picked up, sometimes there are men who want to take advantage of him. And he's like, well, I guess that's just the way it is. And he uh, rationalizes this. Because he he normally with his mom, because she's a former film star, uh, lives in L.A. And he's and in the uh, novel says oh, something like yeah. something absolutely absurd was just like, uh, you know, being being a pretty young boy in in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Jack knew that like Jack had had his fair share of like propositions by uh, grown men in uh, uh, like dressing rooms at stores and things. And it's like, what? Or like uh, he he it's actually specifically said that he has been groped before by men in public. And it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, there's a very specific uh, the, all the gays live in Hollywood and they touch kids. Yes. I mean, that that is the I I, I think uh, working around it is important, but that is directly what is said. Yes. Uh, that that it is perilous for him. And lo and behold, I, I mean, that seems like part of the reason to flee to New England. Yeah. Uh, is is that New England is safe from all that. And it's hard to read that and not get a little bit of Steve there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, things that happen in a novel are not the opinions of the writer necessarily. But when these things show up repeatedly, you begin to notice patterns. Welcome to Just King Things, the show where we read the works <laughs> of Stephen King in publication order. Uh, but and I, I think this is a thing that won't go away. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a Peter thing. I think this is a. I think this is a, Stephen King's been in Hollywood for a little while and had some. Uh, you know, he's been to L.A. a bunch and has some opinions about Hollywood, mm -hmm. um, and that that are getting worked out. I, I don't think that it's like. Uh, like pure Hollywood gay panic necessarily. I don't know if that exactly is what happening, but certainly he has an opinion of the West Coast of uh, that it is like a fallen world mm -hmm. um, that is being thematized in this very yes. Novel. 
<laughs> that that it's it's it is the rough and tumble place where where good men go to die mm-hmm. and uh people people go to store the worst things on the planet quite literally yes. <laughs> or in the universe not even on the planet yeah. in the universe in all possible worlds in all possible worlds the worst stuff is in california um i you know i think there there's something up with that but yeah so he goes to the oatly tavern and uh i don't know there's a bad guy there. Yeah, this and he's mean. This is this is, it's like the closest to kind of a Huckleberry Finn kind of thing because, uh, it's just a bar. Uh, Jack shows up and he's like, "Hey, like I'm hungry and I need like some food and maybe like a place to stay the night. A couple days, can I do some work for you?" And like you know, then be on my way. And the guy who runs it, whose name I don't even remember, he's a total son of a bitch. And he's like, well, sure thing, Sonny. Uh, and then he like, uh, you know, does does the the classic duplicitous move of, you know, letting Jack eat, you know, giving him like two hamburgers and letting him sleep and letting him do a little bit of work. And then uh, when he tallies up the money that he's going to give Jack, he then uh, subtracts all of like the, the room and board, basically. And it's like, oops, you're in the negative. You've got to stay here longer. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's like in cahoots with uh, like the local sheriff or something um, or actually, no, specifically, I think what he what he suggests, right, is that the local sheriff is a pedophile who likes little oh, boys. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is. I mean, like, we are not exaggerating when we say this keeps coming. Up. Yeah, um, this is just like part of what's up in this novel. Yeah, he does say that. Yeah. Um. So like that's the situation. While this is going on, Jack just like has to work in this bar. Uh, and there's this, this creature, uh, this guy's name is Smokey Updike, oh, right. by the way, Smokey Updike. um, <laughs> a little, a little dickhead, uh, and, <laughs> uh, John Updike here. Uh, but there's also, uh, simultaneous with this, this creature called Elroy. <laughs> God, this is rad as hell. Um, Elroy is like an evil goat or some yeah, shit. Yeah, he's like, he's a, got hooves. Yeah, he's like an evil goat person. And I don't mean like <laughs> a, a goat. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he's like a goat. He's not like a satyr or anything. <laughs> he's like a goat. Uh, and he's like stalking uh, Jack throughout this whole thing. Um, is it before or after this that Jack has uh, caused an earthquake? It's after this, because I think that's uh, maybe in Ohio. That ye, uh, that is in Ohio. Yeah. That's at, he. That's when he uses his abilities to escape. After this, I think. Yes. Like when when he comes back into the real world. All right. Put a pin in that. I'll touch on it later. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. This. Oh, because I, I I can just say that really briefly here though. Uh, things that happen in our world resonate into or, or both ways. Things that happen in the territories resonate into the real world, and things that happen in the real world resonate in the territories, but much diminished. So, like the uh, the effect from the territories is huge. So the example that's given in the novel is that the previous king is killed Mm -hmm. or or a king, a few, you know, whatever, a couple generations back is killed. And he um, that sets off World War One or World War Two. I think World War Two in our world. World War Two. Yeah. So like one person in the kind of interregnum that occurs where different factions are fighting for who gets to be the king, which is like a small scale conflict in this world because there's not very many people who live there that echoes boom, 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 boom into our world and becomes World War Two. So there's this kind of fear that whatever Morgan of Oris and Morgan Slope do over there 
whether it's like violence or their own kind of, um, you know, uh, war against the queen, things like that, that that will cause catastrophic effects in our world. And that gets dramatized a few times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, specifically the thing that happens that I was mentioning where Jack causes an earthquake, he's in the territories and he eats an apple and he wants to get rid of the core. So he like uh, digs up a little bit of uh, like, you know, earth or something with the heel of his shoe and then drops the core in and then uh, covers it with dirt. And then when he comes back to like the quote unquote real world, uh, he discovers that close to where he was in Ohio, where he's flipped back over, there was a massive earthquake that like took out a construction project and killed a bunch of people. And he feels really awful about this to the degree that he doesn't want to switch back over to the territories. And I just want to underscore like how absurd this is. <laughs> yes, it's nonsense. Like, so I, I on one on the one hand, I guess, yeah, okay, there's like an interregnum war, whatever, like that causes World War II. But like if Jack <laughs> trying to bury his litter <laughs> causes a massive earthquake, <laughs> then yeah. like anytime they flip over to the territories, shit should be popping off here. <laughs> Yeah, every footfall would be killing hundreds of people, right? Like, the disturbance of particles of dirt would be, like, burying homes and uh, doing... Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and I would say that there is not a consistent kind of relationship there. Because, mm -hmm. um, right, they're, like, murdering dudes left and right. Yeah. Like, why, why would... I mean, this is, I guess, a thing that's that, that really doesn't make any sense. If why would it be a one to one for twinners if like dirt particles, you know, like a small <laughs> hole in the ground turns into an earthquake? Why would there be a one to one person to person? <laughs> wouldn't like a person be a whole bunch of people in our world? Like, wouldn't that make a little bit more sense? Yeah. <laughs> so like when you kill a person, just suddenly in the U.S., like five hundred people drop dead. Right. <laughs> And uh, I mean, but, but that wouldn't work, I guess, because of the twinner system. Anyway, yes, you're right. There's like an incommensurability. I, I, we have gotten off track. We are in the. We're talking about Elroy. Um, I do like the way this chapter is written or started because it's called the pitcher plant. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah the the idea but, of the uh, trap that like you fall in and you can't get out. Yep. But uh, but yeah, Elroy the goat man. Mm -hmm. Uh. And that's it. Like Jack like gets confronted by Elroy the goat man after a bunch of threats. And then he like is running away. And as he's running away from uh, uh, oh, the other thing that we need to mention, you know what you might wonder, like, why doesn't he just flip over immediately? It's because uh, Speedy has given him some magic juice. Magic juice. Uh, that is implied very strongly to be just like really cheap, gross wine. Um. And when uh, Jack takes a sip, he can flip over to the territories. And so he has a limited amount of this uh, juice that he can use. Um, and every time he flips over, he drops it and spills a shitload of it. Yes. <laughs> so, so he's not doing himself any favors. Yeah. Uh, so like you, you that means we get like so many pages of him being just like stuck at this uh, bar and having to like do all of this manual labor and his hands hurt because he has to keep moving beer kegs around and they're constantly like smashing his fingers and his feet hurt because he's standing on concrete and Smokey, the guy who runs the bar is like uh, uh, beating the um, woman who works as a server there. Uh, and beating him too. And, and, he's punching yeah. him in the stomach and punch him in the face of a 12 year old kid. Yeah. 
And I mean, and of course, right? It's like all kick the dog stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, we know he's bad because he beats Jack up. But there is a, I mean, it just turns into gratuitousness, right? Mm -hmm. Like it it, it is, he is a comic book evil guy and he's going to beat Jack up because he's a comic book evil guy. Mm -hmm. The end. Yeah. And so eventually like uh, Elroy makes his move and then Jack is running away and then he flips over to the territories and that's how he escapes. Um, and I mean, that's that's kind of it for that. Uh, that's how he like heads off to Ohio and then he causes the uh, earthquake. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the Oatley? No, I don't think so. What's the what is the next event? Is that meeting Wolf? Yeah. Is that the next one? So when he gets into Ohio, um, he uh, is traveling across Ohio and then he flips over to the territories to what is he doing is that an accident oh actually i'm so sorry yeah that, this is not the next event the next event is i believe snowball oh that's right he meets snowball in ohio outside of like akron okay <sighs> uh <laughs> this is a so he's like in a mall uh-huh and i love that there's like 80s kids there i know this like, is such this a it's like boy. such a thing from a movie <laughs> It is. It is. Like the the dumb jock who shows up with like the two cheerleaders next to him and they just like mock this younger kid who looks like he's uh unhoused. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like he he is like rough and tumble. He's gotten the crap beat out of him. He's like been living rough in a fantasy world. Yeah. <laughs> and he like comes back into the real world. And the first thing that happens, he gets roasted outside of a mall. <laughs> Um, but then he sees like a guy who's uh, like busking. He's, you know, playing guitar. And this man, he, I th- they call him Snowball. Mm-hmm. He's a black man. Yeah. And uh, the enti- this entire section is based around Jack not being able to two- tell two old black men from one another. Mm-hmm. He's like, is this speedy? Right? Yeah, he's like, is this Speedy? He is uh, also an older black man. Mm-hmm. I think it's he's got a flavor of Speedy about him. Mm-hmm. And the guy kept, and, and the, this guy's blind, very much the kind of like blind guitarsman. You know, this is this is a broad character type, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and yeah, the guy keeps being like, no, but then he's also like being like, yeah, maybe I am. <laughs> and then lo and behold, later in the novel, he is Speedy. Mm-hmm. He's like his twinner or something, isn't he? I don't. It's know. unclear, no, because right? His, twin, his twinner is Parkus, who was like over in the territories, getting like irradiated or something oh, at yeah. the time. Yeah, what happens to Parkus in this novel? We'll talk about, it, I guess, at the end. But that that's deeply confusing to me. Mm-hmm. Just like in a mechanical sense, what happened to that guy? Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so like it's an extremely weird scene because it plays out as. Jack just not being able to to tell two people apart. Mm -hmm. And then the narrative Um, presents it as like, ooh, isn't this mysterious and magical? (laughs) Yeah, isn't it mysterious and magical that this young white kid is mistaking two black men for one another? And no, that's not (laughs) mysterious or magical, even a little bit. And then, I mean, that's the real chaser, is that the novel says, actually, it was mysterious and magical the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) It was that way. Sorry. Sorry to report. Um... Oh, I, I, one other thing we didn't uh, talk about as well. So when Jack is in the territories the first time, before he gets to the bar, he like flips over and he meets a guy who's like the captain of the guard, who's like supposed to get him going on his way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has to do this whole thing where he's pretending to be his like bastard child and doing all this. It's basically he's yeah. being snuck in to see the queen so that he can establish like, oh shit, my mother and the queen are twinners. Yes. You know, they're the same person. 
Uh, this is a reuse of the Eyes of the Dragon. Did you notice that? Yes. <laughs> this thing has so, so much like Eyes of the Dragon like about it, right? We even get the two-headed parrot in this scene that Flag has yeah. in his uh, dungeon in Eyes of the Dragon. It shows up here in the fair outside of the queen's tents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, basically, uh, he goes and looks in in this, like, cubby hole, very much like Eyes of the Dragon, and is able to determine, like, oh, shit, that's my mother. Mm-hmm. And then he meets Osman here, mm-hmm. uh, who is, talk about a Kingian character. Yeah. Like, Osman is the template for everything from here on out. Mm-hmm. Every villain. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's, what if uh, Mandy Patinkin's character from The Princess Bride was evil? The is that uh, Inigo Montoya? Yes, I don't know. Is is he that kind of guy, or is he? he well, in in the sense that he's like presented as sort of a a, a dandy. Yes, yes, absolutely, right? for sure. Like he's got, and and this is all kind of like uh, queer coded within yes, the novel, yeah, right? This he's is buried he, in the kind of gay panic. Yeah, he he wears like uh, he doesn't bathe or something. There's some sort of sour smell about him, but also he wears like perfumes and colognes and too much of it. It's overpowering. And he's also like uh, extremely emotive and reactive and dramatic and uh, in like uh, yells about a bunch of ale that gets spilled. And then he has this uh, whip that he's carrying around. And so he's like whipping people. Um, and I think Jack like looks into his eyes or something. And the narrative is like, and Jack realized he was looking into the eyes of a man who was totally insane. <laughs> and yeah, he he's just unhinged, right? He's like an yeah. unhinged plot device that will just show up wherever you need him to and, and be evil. But he like brutally starts whipping Jack in the street and Jack has mm-hmm. to do this performance as, like, you know, uh, the bastard child. He has to pretend that he's doing that. And so, again, it's just these moments of, like, uh, the plot moves through cruelty and and abuse to Jack in particular. So, anyway, so all that happens. And then we go to the bar. And then we do uh, the, the stuff with Snowball. And then we get to uh, Wolf. He, like, flips back over into the territories. And, uh, and there are a bunch of sheep and then, like, a sheepdog. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, what is it? So the sheep are like, they're, they're actually, they're cows, aren't they? Oh, they are. You're right. You're right. They're, they're, they're cows that are the size of sheep. Yeah. Like this is, this is some good stuff. I like this idea that like in, in the, in the territories, there are cows, but they're the size of sheep. And Jack, I think, doesn't he call them the cheap? Something like that. Or something. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's good. I like to imagine like the fantasy world filled with tiny, tiny sheep sized cows. Um, and so, yeah, Wolf is, uh, guarding this flock and Wolf, uh, turns out to be, a, a a werewolf, which turns out to be like a specific, uh, like sub race or like distinct race from humans in, in the territories. Some, um, yeah, they are their own dudes doing their own thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, they are, uh, I mean, to add some, uh, further support to a claim that you made back in, in the stand episode, uh, the wolves are the hobbits of the territories. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're like, they're simple country folk. Uh, they've got, they don't wear shoes. They've got really furry feet. Uh, it's in fact, uh, I think said that, uh, the wolves always have like they always have like paw pad feet, even when they're like fully human um, or their 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 feet are like spatulate is the word that is used. Right. There's there's something up with their feet. Um, they're simple and they're good hearted. Uh, 
But also very critical, again, uh, uh, tying back to your claim in the stand episode that it's Tom Cullen who is like the 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 hobbit of that novel, um, which is to say that the person who is the pure innocent and kind of, you know, incapable of sin. Uh, they are just like Wolf is described multiple times and perceived as by other characters uh, when they flip back over to, to our world um, as someone with an intellectual disability. Yeah, he's just Tom Cullen. Yes. He's what if Tom right. Cullen was a werewolf? Yeah, and instead of saying M-O-O-N, that, se- that spells Tom Cullen, he just said his own name. Wolf! Wolf, and it's constant. Yes. This whole thing with Wolf, everything around Wolf uh, in when he's introduced in the territory, in the territories, is uh, it's the where these two men could go when they write a book. And it the, the high watermark is so high, it, like... We, we've already worked through in, in the stand episode all the like issues with the Tom Cullen-esque character. You know, I, I don't think we need to belabor that point here. Uh, it, it is a, a plot convenience that Stephen King loves to go back to over and over again. He has this kind of um, uh, beautiful naivete, magical naivete that he associates with uh, people with intellectual disabilities. They are somehow special in that way. Um, and, uh, you know, they're the victims of um, extreme violence, but also extreme uh, grace and dignity. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's this very kind of, uh, patronizing view of, um, of, of people. Um, but the, the, so I don't mean that part of it, <laughs> but, but what I mean by that is it's like, look at this cool little fantasy world. There's like these people that live here. They have a very different social interaction than the world that we do. You know, uh, they, they can like do what's up and then like an evil wizard shows up and they fight an evil wizard and it like gets pretty dangerous. Right. So like. The, the way this works out is he meets Wolf, and then, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Morgan of Oris shows up. Mm-hmm. He's got a lightning rod, mm-hmm. which is rad, and he's shooting lightning bolts. D&D-ass mm-hmm. character here flying around. Legend of Zelda-style yeah, stuff. Yes, and he, so he's, like, doing that stuff, and he starts, like, killing the sheep, and that's, like, very traumatizing for Wolf because his whole like life is built around organizing these sheep. There's also a very easy convenience here between like sheep dog behaviors and people with intellectual mm-hmm. disabilities that is deeply, deeply uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. and played straight. You know, there's no, no self-criticism going on here. Weirdly enough, we are going to talk about this extensively, the same deal in the bonus oak for this month. Yeah. Which is on the lawnmower <laughs> man. And, and it has a, a Tom Cullen S character in it as well. Mm-hmm. And I listened to the creator commentary for it. And, uh, buddy, I've got some information for you. But, okay. uh, hey, it's the ad break. Uh, it's the middle of the episode. This is a long one. Wowee. Once we start reading these uh, Stephen King doorstoppers, uh, we're, you know, we've read a couple already, but these episodes are going to get long. Uh, just wait till we get to it. But, uh, that's beside the point. Uh, this show is reader supported. We have bonus odes every month that you can check out. They come out at the same day. So whenever this is coming out, we've got a bonus episode coming out on uh, The Lawnmower Man, the 1992 film uh, that we have learned a lot about, or at least I've learned a lot about. And we're going to have a lot to say about it, I think. Uh, So you can go and check that out. You can go to rangedtouch.com slash, or nope, 
Well, you can go to rangetouch.com, I guess. You can go to patreon.com slash rangetouch. There's also a link in the description down below, uh, wherever you're listening to this episode. You can just click on it. It'll take you right there. Uh, at $5 a month, you can get access to our bonus episodes. Uh, at $10 a month, you can get access to our uh, Homestuck Made This World episodes. And there's all kinds of other stuff that's associated as well. If you enjoyed this show and you like listening to it every month, uh, it requires a lot of work <laughs> to do this these <laughs> episodes. And we would definitely appreciate uh, if you kicked us some money. Um, you know, a, a dollar a month helps. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, if you want an extra, whatever, hour and a half, two hours of us talking about the Stephen King adapted movie thing, that is something you can pay $5 a month for. You can also check out our other uh, shows that we do. Uh, you can go to rangetouch.com to find out about those. Uh, you can check out Game Study Study Buddies, where Michael and I work through uh, one book of game studies per month. Uh, we've been doing a little series on books about gambling, and we've learned a lot on those, which is really exciting. Um, you can go to, uh, you can check out Too Much Future, uh, which is on youtube.com slash rangetouch. Uh, also, there's a link to that down below in the description, but that's where we're playing through all the Fallout games in order and talking about them and seeing how they've changed over the years. If you like the kind of scalar project going on here, you might like that. And you can also check out Homestuck Made This World, which is our show where we are reading through Homestuck, also in order, uh, which is a webcomic <laughs> that was hugely influential on the internet, in internet culture, in the world that we live in now. And if you don't know anything about it, I promise you, you can learn a whole bunch about it. Uh, on that show. And so we've got a whole bunch of episodes of that. So again, you can go to rangetouch.com to learn about all of these different things and uh, patreon.com slash rangetouch in order to support the show. We would really appreciate it. Also, please, 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 if you're on Apple Podcasts or any other program, uh, platform that allows you to uh, review the show, give us five stars. That would be a huge deal because I will read a... Uh, uh, a review that if you leave a five-star review, I'll, I'm going to read a review on every episode, little uh, break like I have right here. I'm filibustering just a little bit because I want to be able to look it up. Well, while you um, do that, I'll remind everyone and myself please. that we also have t-shirts. If you go to rangetouch.com slash shop. It's true. Yeah. I keep forgetting to, to mention that when we're doing these ad breaks, but yeah, uh, we, do. You... we got to, we got to do it for Steve shirt. Yeah, we have a, a, a one-year commemorative print of, uh, like, all of our favorite Stephen King characters standing outside the Overlook Hotel. We got we got other shirts, too, but mm-hmm. uh, We got just the stuff. logo, the logo yeah. for the show, if you like the own shirt. And look, we are always taking suggestions. Go to twitter.com slash rangetouch, you know, go down to the description below and click that there. Send us a, a, a you know, what kind of shirt would you like to see? We're, we are always thinking about uh, new things to add to the shore. I got two uh, reviews here. Okay. Um... <laughs> so we got uh i don't even like stephen king <laughs> this is from marxist john cena <laughs> who who we see uh on twitter i think i think marxist john cena shows up on twitter might be in the discord as well this is the review i'm about forty thousand dollars in student loan debt with a degree in english literature and i can say for absolute certainty that listening to three or four episodes of this is pretty equivalent to what i learned in college <laughs> so there you go <laughs> Shout out to you. Marcus. You don't even like you know Steve. What? Wait, what? Yeah. If, I, I don't even like Stephen King, but likes the education, I see. Yeah. It seems like. Well, I, uh, I, my assumption was that you somehow learned a lot about Stephen King in college. Oh, that could be it, too. I guess three <laughs> or four episodes is equivalent to how much they, they learned about Stephen King. But I bet that $40,000 had a lot to do with him becoming the Marxist John Cena rather than mm-hmm. uh, uh, capitalist John Cena. But uh, also their twinner is uh, 
capitalist John Cena. <laughs> uh, CG Sauce says, It's good. Before the show, I didn't really care about the works of Stephen King in chronological order. Now I won't shut up about it. It really put a strain on my marriage. Uh, rip to thee. Um, but, uh, so yeah, leave us a five-star review, and uh, we'll uh, check it out. And uh, we'll read a couple of them on every episode. We're going to let you get right back to the episode right now, though, because it's been a long ad break. Thanks so much for your support, if you're supporting us already. And if not, maybe give it a shot. It's not going to hurt you any. And uh, we'll go from there. Goodbye or welcome back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a, a take a sip of my magic juice here. Glug, glug, glug. <laughs> but so anyway, so Morgan of Oris is there and he's like lightning bolting these things. He's like killing the little cattle sheep or whatever. And it's like deeply, uh, you know, troubling. It, it's it's uh, distressing in the way that like a good fantasy novel can be distressing. And it's like, oh, there's real stakes here. Like mm-hmm. things are going bad. And Jack is, like, able to kind of maneuver a little bit. Wolf starts drowning. The sheep are dying or, like, whatever. The cattle are dying. It's awful. Um, but, you know, like, fantasy awful. And then, uh, the, I mean, you know, this is like, you know, these two dudes were sitting there and they were, like, over the internet. And they were like, hell yeah, we figured it out. They're, like, doing their pester logs to each other. And they're <laughs> like, lol, figured it out. Uh, and uh, what happens is that Jack grabs Wolf. Wolf, who is a character who is, like, biologically determined to do one thing. He is a dog creature. He lives Mm -hmm. in a fantasy world that is idyllic and perfect and kind of designed around him in some ways, right? He's got a noble life. Um, He has all the characteristics of a dog and all the worries and concerns of a dog, but he in his heart is good and true and fit for a particular kind of world. And what does he do? He drags him into the dog shit world that we live in that is full of noise and sound and pollution and hatred for animals. And lo and behold, we get to sit with that for 200 goddamn pages. And here's the thing that's really wild, Cameron. This happens in Indiana. Specifically, they go through the part of Indiana where I'm from to have all this misery happen to them. Yes. And so the next 200 uh, pages are watching these two authors beat a dog with a stick in Michael's backyard. Yes. They literally they go they go within 10 miles of my hometown. It's the worst shit. Um, This is really where I turned on the novel, like around mm -hmm. Wolf. It went from me thinking, oh, this is like not where I'm, you know, this is not what I'm enjoying. And I think it's a little bit gratuitous to um, this is the worst thing that we've read. This is worse than Rage. It, it, at least Rage had my motherfucks in it, right? There's nothing yeah. <laughs> There's nothing like that here. Yeah. Uh, the the So uh, casting back into my memories, when I was on the Stephen King listservs back when I was, uh, uh, you know, a wee uh, Wolf was always a fan favorite character. Whenever discussion of the talisman came up, like, is there going to be a talisman film adaptation? Oh, I hope so. Steven Spielberg's been attached in the past. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, it's the Duffer brothers who are attached. Blah, yep. blah, 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 blah. Yep. Uh, uh, Wolf was always like a character that was beloved by people on that listserv. Um, and I think I, I still think in, in many ways, a lot of King readers really like Wolf. Uh, but it is impossible. And when I first read this in, in, I guess it would have been about high school then when I first managed to get through it, um, I could understand that because like Wolf is an essentially likable character in that he is incapable of being evil or mean. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> like he is noble and good, right? Like right. he's like Tom Cullen. He he, he, yeah. does, he has no cruelty or badness in him. And that's why it's so exquisite to watch him get destroyed by human society. Right. And so this is this is where it's like really fucked up is like this entire thing becomes like a theater uh, in which we see Wolf dragged over the coals of our world. Literally, like being in our world is torture to him. Like he can smell things that we cannot. And he like he, he like smells the pollution in our air. He smells like the sicknesses in people around him. Yeah. Um, and he is unhappy. He is crying. So much of Wolf's kind of uh, thing here is just him being like sad and upset and getting sick. Uh, and it's it's awful. And especially once they get to. So uh, time for Michael to digress about Indiana some more. Uh, so Michael's, Indiana, Michael's Indiana hour. <laughs> well, they're they're going okay so they're going from east coast to west coast they're traveling uh, at this point along interstate 70 which is like roughly analogous uh for whatever reason uh to like uh, the high road in the territories or what have you Mm -hmm. now i think they like they they like swerve off of uh uh, the high road slash 70 because they had that encounter with Morgan. I think they're trying to play it a little safe, but here's the thing uh, where they want to go, where Jack is aiming is Springfield, Illinois, where there is a boys school where Richard Sloat, uh, Morgan's son and Jack's best friend uh, goes to school. So he wants to meet up with Richard uh, and let Richard know what's going on uh, before, as he like continues on his journey to the West coast. So they're uh, on 70 or around 70, and then they go off of 70, and uh, Springfield, Illinois is slightly southwest of, like, say, Indianapolis. And Indianapolis is, like, dead center in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Instead of going south, they go north. They go up and around Indianapolis. They cut through Muncie. The exact opposite way that you would ever want to go if you were heading to Springfield. And yet, nevertheless, this is the way that they go through Indiana, which would have added like days upon days to their journey. Um, I don't understand why this is happening. It makes no sense. But anyway, they go up and around Indiana. And as they're heading toward the Illinois line, uh, they end up getting picked up by uh, a cop who uh, basically takes them as like homeless youth. Um, and he turns them over to a, a home for wayward boys uh, that is like it's the uh, sunlight gardener. There's like a whole name for it, but it's like uh, it's called the sunlight home. Mm-hmm. It is a as I said, a home for wayward boys, basically a labor camp uh, run by an evangelical named sunlight gardener who turns out to be the twinner of Osmond from the territories. So another one of uh, uh, Morgan's lieutenants. Uh, and, uh, in, in sort of typical Keenan fashion, like Sunlight Gardener is, uh, an evangelical hypocrite, right? A, a charismatic demagogue and so on. Uh, and the entire thing at the Sunlight Home is just, here are all the ways in which boys can be tortured and in which Wolf can be especially tortured. Yeah. Cause he, you know, he, uh, in the same way that like, uh, people transform a little bit like Jack, his clothes transform into like. Uh, uh, territories close when he goes over. Mm-hmm. Wolf like transforms a little bit too, and then I think we learn that he just can't see at all, right? 
Uh, yeah. He, when he when he comes over to our world, he has glasses yeah. like glass. John Lennon glasses specifically. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. But I think over in in the territories, he also couldn't see very well. Mm-hmm. I think that that's like established at the beginning. So like there there are even more kind of qualities to him. Right. Which really makes the other senses like the hearing and the smelling so much more kind of brutal um, for him. But yeah. Oh, and there, you know, I think one of the if one were to make a defense Right of some of the stuff that happens in this novel, um, it's that these things really do happen, right? Like mm-hmm. bad things do happen to children, and you know I don't think that I I don't think that's like outside of the purview of of literature or whatever these novels, right? It's not the fact that these things occur. I actually think that like um, what happens with the sunlight home in particular, which is that these kids are picked up because Wolf is like red as like a teenage boy as well, right? You know, like mm-hmm. in in our world, he's seen that yeah, way. He- he like he he reads as like a sixteen year old boy. Yeah, and so uh, he, uh, so the you know the deputy or the sheriff who picks him up basically once everything happens and they're taken to the sunlight home, he's like, yeah, we both made twenty dollars for that, and mm-hmm. we know that that happens, right? There have been many yeah. cases in the United States of this occurring, lawsuits about it, about uh, youth this being sold into the prison system uh, for kickbacks. You know that is a thing that has occurred. Uh, particularly in the South, and it's highly racialized, right? These, these are overwhelmingly mm-hmm. um, uh, African-Americans, uh, teenagers who this happens to in the United States, um, although that's not exclusively what happens. So, uh, right, like, I think one defense of the of the content here, right, is that, yeah, the like, the world is dangerous and bad for kids, mm-hmm. and these things do happen. And, like, I, I think that one should be able to write a novel about that. I'm in no way critiquing for in the broadest strokes what's happening but it is the precisely what you just said the sunlight home really brings into focus it's that it is almost as if someone sat down and said what are the ways that you could make wolf's life torture mm-hmm. and then you like numbered them all out and just work through them slowly and the same thing with jack like what are the things that could happen there's all kinds of like ball torture uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so sorry, sorry to have to bring that up, but that occurs in this novel more than one time. There's all kinds of stuff involved with that. There's like all this gagging stuff that goes on. They're use they're they're giving people shots too. Is mm-hmm. that am I making that up? There's like truth serum shit going on. It's it's wild. Yeah, it's a little unclear. Like, like what's, pe- people are become- dying at this at this home. To be clear, like kids are being killed and then they're being like secretly buried on a back lot. Yes, absolutely. And a, a thing that is really cool to me here uh, that that I really like about the sunlight home is that at one point during it, Jack, uh, he's like, okay, because they're in like a cell basically together, and he talk he's talking to Wolf, and he's like, all right, I guess I'm gonna like try to use my inborn powers as the universe's golden boy to, uh, you know, um, to flip over without the use of Speedy's juice, right? Mm-hmm. And he yeah, does he it. zeroed out on that. Yes, he zeroed out on that. So it's only, you know, and this is, I guess, the way that, like, the, he develops as a character is that he realizes he does have this inborn power. Um, although it, it is just purely mechanical. It, it, he doesn't learn anything about himself. It's just, I, I used mm-hmm. to have to have this plot contrivance. Now I don't. Um, and so they flip over and they flip over and they are in a straight up like Egyptian slavery work camp. Mm hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's, so it's like people pushing big blocks of stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, there's demons and shit, gargoyles or something whipping people. It's hell. It's literally yeah, hell, yeah. like fantasy I mean, hell. it's. 
Yeah, it's like it's a it's a uh, the pits of Isengard, right? Yes. Uh, after yes. Saruman gets to work. Yes, it is straight up that that is a great pull, and and then so they they've seen this like um uh you know rabble rouser who's been there with them. This other character, I don't remember his name. He's like a rabble rouser, and he's like not gonna take sunlight gardener <laughs> he, shit. He, he's got a. You can tell a Straub named him because I I don't remember his name either. But it's something like Per Junkins. Yes, yes. It's like a bizarre. Uh, that's also like the unfortunate thing about all these names is like without having them in front of me, there's no way I can pull them. There's no Stu Redmonds in this book. I'll tell you that. Other than mm-hmm. I guess Jack Sawyer, <laughs> the main mm-hmm. character, but. Uh, but yeah, so they flip over into the thing and they're seeing this like hell on earth, you know, or hell in the territories uh, labor camp. And then lo and behold, it's that rabble rouser and he's there mm-hmm. and he's like being crushed. You know, his spine has been crushed by like a, a giant stone block. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh shit, things are bad. Mm-hmm. And they like flip back over because there's no escape here either. They got to like figure their way out in the real world. But I don't really understand what happens there because it seems like if you can transport people from one world to the other, you would never bury any children in in our world. You would just dump them in the labor pit. Yeah. So Yeah, that would make sense, huh? Yeah, but maybe it's his twinner. <laughs> I didn't really understand. Uh it seems like there there are in some parts of the novel it seemed like they were saying that that kid in the territories was the twinner of the kid in our world. And so the kid in our world dies or is, you know, imperiled in the same way that the kid at the labor camp dies. And but when he looks at him, it seems like he was looking at that guy. So I'm I'm a little bit unclear on what happens. And just to be honest, like, I think this is going to be a problem with these massive doorstop novels because there's so much weird repetition. And then some details don't ever get explained again. It becomes really hard to hold this whole thing in your head. And I like turned down a lot of pages and actually went through it for the hour before we recorded today, re-looking at a bunch of pages for this to have it in my head. The, these novels become... the the uh, In the same way that we talked about The Stand, where like there are things that stick out to people and things that don't, uh, by, I think part of that is a byproduct of the length. It's just mm-hmm. like, it's hard to keep all this stuff in your brain. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, things go bad at the Sunlight Home. Yeah, eventually, because Wolf is a werewolf, and he uh, changes with the moon. Uh, this is and we very have a, cool, by the way. Yeah. So we have an early segment, actually, where they're, uh, after they've just passed through Muncie, um, where the full moon is coming up, and Jack has to, like, because, like, when, when Wolf changes, right, he uh, can't control himself. He's just a big, ravening beast. Um, so he gets, like, he and Jack work together, and Jack, like, uh, uh, locks himself in a shed, basically, during the three or four days that Wolf is uh, experiencing his change and then they go on and then they get picked up and sent to the sunlight home and eventually, uh, you know, months keep happening and so the full moon is coming around again and Wolf starts to change again and then eventually uh, he goes full Wolf and just like slaughters a bunch of people and that's how Jack escapes. Yeah, yeah, he becomes like a super hero, well, villain, I don't know. A super yeah. neutral, <laughs> yeah. right? Like just a murdering machine. And like, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason people might like Wolf as well, right? Is like, there's not an evil bone in his body. He's pure and innocent until he is overtaken by like this super cool retributive force that through no fault of his own, uh, you know, makes him do this liberatory, like powerful, badass action to get revenge on everyone who tortured him before. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's not him. That's, mm-hmm. you know, this thing that is in him that he can't stop. 
And he also he ends up getting shot and he dies. And Jack feels extremely guilty about this because this entire time Jack's been thinking this is part of the like misery of the novel. Jack keeps thinking like I shouldn't have taken Wolf with me. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have. He should not have taken Wolf. It would have been better for like just pure quality of life. It would have been better for Wolf to have drowned than to have everything happen to him happen. And he still got shot. To death. Yeah. You got murdered, straight up murdered in the real world, and then disintegrated into, like, uh, Infinity War dust. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what happened with that. Yeah, that is what happens. Yeah, he when he <laughs> dies, he does, he disintegrates. Uh, and I, I guess, like, part of that is, like, the narrative convenience of, like, well, we don't have to worry about this werewolf anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I thought maybe what would happen is he's, like, fading into myth, you know, and he would, mm-hmm. like, end up back in the territories and things would be okay. Nope, that's not the case. There's just a different wolf who shows up way later at the end of the novel and is wolf two, and he's just yep. as good. He, it literally is reduced. Like by the end of this novel, the like final you know heart closing at the top here around the story of Wolf is that uh, two dogs are the same. Yeah, <laughs> any two. Uh, you can have a, a dog and just get another dog, and that dog's going to be yeah. great too. It's real weird. Like, is the implication here that all wolves are identical to wolf? Like, because they can't be because they have they have uh, gender distinctions, right? We get a scene with Wolf's mother and his sisters. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. He's like, I guess maybe like the chair. He's reincarnated. He's reborn as Mm -hmm. wolf, too. Um, And there's bad wolves. I actually really like them. I think they're cool. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the things that Morgan gets up to the wolves. So in the ecology of the territories or whatever, there's like the place where people live, which is kind of like normal fantasy, weirdly like feudal England style, despite the fact that this is uh, like fantasy America. Uh, but there's like the that's sort of the East Coast or like the equivalent of the East Coast. And then there's like a, a sort of a borderland where the wolves hang out. And that's where uh, they like have they tend their flocks and the flocks graze and everything. Well, that's um, the American Midwest, which is full of. Yes. Of, <laughs> of, of wolves. Right. Uh-huh, like, it's a pretty right? dim view of of the Midwest. Uh, and then uh, at, at the end, at the very edge of that is uh, a a train station that Sloat has built, uh, and that runs to uh, the west cl- the west coast slash Mordor. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and that's where Jack ends up having to go after after he has uh, done everything at Sunlight Home and uh, like taken on the guilt of having gotten Wolf killed. Uh, he heads to the boys school that I mentioned, the Thayer school, uh, where he meets up with Richard, uh, Morgan's son. Uh, and then things get really confusing where like they're not in the territories, but the school keeps like slipping out of our reality into some sort of like horrible twilight land where there are a bunch of twinners to the students who are already at the school, but they're all like weird goblins and ghoulies and things. Yeah. None of this, like this is all very inconsistent and doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And they're like, so they end up being stuck in kind of like the residence hall, he and Richard. And mm-hmm. Richard is like presented as extremely pragmatic. He's practical. He's science oriented. Um, you know, he he doesn't like to read books. He had he, he just thinks imagination is a waste of time. Um, and so uh, this in, when when things start happening, when things start getting weird and Jack tries to tell him like, hey, I'm on an epic fantasy quest. 
Um, you want to come with <laughs> your dad's the villain, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard is like, hmm, you've gone insane. Uh, and then when things like start happening, right, visible things start happening, shifts start happening between worlds. Uh, Richard is like, oh, I have a brain tumor and this is all a hallucination and <laughs> yes. I'm dying. Yeah. Uh, and they're like stuck in the residence hall and all of the, uh, evil twinners of the other students for some reason are outside of the residence hall. And it was never clear to me, like why they didn't just come in and like kidnap people, but they just like keep standing outside the windows and screaming. Like, uh, what is it? Uh, they keep saying to Richard, it's a bring out your passenger. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they, they keep throwing rocks. Yeah. This happens uh, for what? A hundred pages. Yeah, like weird bugs start like growing in through the walls because there's like weird mold and stuff. Yeah, basically this is Silent Hill. Like in the yeah, middle, in the yeah. middle of this novel, Silent Hill happens. Yeah, and which is fi- like on its own, it's fine, but uh, like it doesn't really fit into. It, it doesn't make sense in the context mm-hmm. of like what we know about the territories or any of that stuff. It, it really is very inconsistent and kind of feels like a cool idea that they didn't really massage into the structure of the novel. Um, but also, again, this is a place where it's like chapter after chapter of Jack being like, we got to get our shit together. And Richard saying, no, nah, I'm not gonna. And that's all that happens. It is just repetition <laughs> of the same conversation over and over and over and over again. Although we do get a really cool thing of like, the reason that Richard does not believe in fantasy or imagination is mm-hmm. that Morgan Sloat, you know, has been going back and forth in the territories and his like dude on the other side, his twinner is an evil magician. And so he's just been exposed. Every exposure he has had to the territories has been awful, like mm-hmm. truly terrible. He's like Osmond showing up at his house <laughs> and mm-hmm. like hanging out with him. Um, yeah, it's like really, really bad stuff. And so he has, like, purposefully blocked all of that out um, in order, you know, and become, like, a pure rationalist in order to avoid the horror that is, like, the territories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and also um, Sunlight Gardener's son was, like, the next, you know, door down the the, the uh, hallway, right? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Sunlight Gardener's son goes to school with him um, and is implied to be, like, Yog sothoth or like he's uh, the he's like uh, the the intertext for both King and Straub here appears to be H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's story, The Dunwich Horror, where there's like a, a there's like two twins. Right. Uh, uh, one looks basically human. Uh, and then there's another twin who's never seen. And it turns out he's like this uh, horrible, like interdimensional entity. And here we have uh, Richard's neighbor, who's just like this weird, creepy kid who lives next door. And then in the territories, his twinner is like this horrible, like acid spitting tentacle beast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like it's, it's a, a pretty, pretty different kind of thing. You definitely don't want to flip over into the territories if you're, mm-hmm. if you're that but yeah, he's like in his human, you know, that version of the Twinner in our world. He's like murdering cats and shit. He's like, yeah, you were talking about one of the things that Straub goes back to is like serial serial killer stuff. And that's 100 percent the template here, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is like a broader thing of like, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, um, uh, I, I'm trying to think of any like Jeffrey Dahmer here has like a big mutant creature over in the territories. Yes. Um, and and he that that serial killers are kind of the echo of an inhuman thing 
uh, mm-hmm. over in some other world in the same way that like you know the earthquake happened which is like mm-hmm. cool cool like gee i guess um you know like in a in a horror novel uh, but it doesn't really get played out enough mm-hmm. you you have just done more work than the novel did <laughs> and <laughs> yes. you said uh four sentences so uh eventually uh he grabs richard and they run away Mm-hmm. It just so happens that right next to the Thayer school uh, is over in the territories is the train station that Morgan has built to navigate the Badlands, which is uh, the irradiated hellscape uh, that stretches from Illinois all the way to California. <laughs> so the rest of the the rest of the continental United States, there's where you stand <laughs> like yep. it's it's the, the bucolic Midwest with the wolves. Uh, and then, uh, and then it's literally, it's the wastelands from the dark tower three. It's the wastelands. And also this is the, uh, the guy from before he goes across the desert in the gunslinger, Mm -hmm. that character showing back up. And actually this shows up again in, uh, it's in the beginning of the wasteland, right? Or the wastelands because, um, they go, I don't remember the name of the town, but, but Roland at all go to that like weird small Christian community of old people at the beginning of that novel. And they Mm -hmm. like praise him. And it's kind of this big preparation for this nightmarish journey. They're about to go on when they go through Lud and then the wastelands after Lud. That's what happens here. They like meet a guy and uh, in our world, it's in our world, it's Jesus, right? Uh And in Alternia, it's Jesus. And Mm -hmm. in the territories, it's Jason. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it's kind of been, I don't know. It's been a little bit cagey, I guess, in the novel. But at this point, it's pretty clear that Jack, his twinner, in, died, but you mm-hmm. know, was murdered by Morgan of Oris. And so Jack is the only one of him in this kind of relationship, which is why he's able to bounce back and forth as himself rather than kind of inhabiting a different body. And uh, but he is Jason, this like religious figure, this Jesus figure. He's the savior of the world, um, and this guy just straight up worships him. It's so weird, right? Like his twinner was named Jason and it like and at first you're just like, yeah, okay, people are saying Jason. Oh, that must be like the name for Jesus here. Okay, that that's cool, right? That's like a cool twinner thing because they also keep talking about uh they talk a lot in the territories about God being a carpenter, right? Mm-hmm. God pounds his nails. Yeah. So, it's, God it's pound re- it. Yes, right. It's it's like the cool like uh uh feeling that you're like hearing our own world communicated back to you through like a game of cosmic telephone. Mm-hmm. Can can I uh can I like uh, uh intellectually wound you here? Sure. It is it's fracking or whatever they say in in Firefly. <laughs> it's that same thing. <laughs> I mean, can yes. You, can you imagine if they were like running around in that in, in space and be like, God pounds his nails. <laughs> that would be way better. I would have watched Firefly if that were true. That would have been good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, that, that's you. You also have they don't have the Bible. They have the book of good farming and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it turns out like uh, Jack slash Jason, because Jason was his like twinner's name, is literally a Christ figure. Yeah. And it's just like weird. <laughs> yeah. It's like if you name like the the way the causality is kind of depicted here, it's like if you named your child Jesus. Mm-hmm. Cuz Jason already existed. He was already in the book of good farming that was already a religious thing. Mm-hmm. And the queen and the king had a child and they were like, 
we're going to name that kid Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's pretty it's pretty odd. But yeah, uh, basically this guy who's like operating this uh, train station, way station, ha ha ha, uh, he figures it out, you know, or, you know, takes him to be this kind of figure and gives him a bunch of food and blah, 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 and all kinds of stuff and puts him on the train. Mm-hmm. And his name is them- Anders. Is his name Anders? Yes. Another uh, weird Eyes of the Dragon echo. Oh. Oh, it is interesting. Mm-hmm. It was the butler, uh, uh, the uh, captain of the guard, or what have you. Oh, I got it. Okay. Um, and then, well, kicks him, kicks him down the road. They get in the thing. There's some crates there because Morgan of Oris has been is is moving stuff from the west coast to the east coast, basically, um, mm-hmm. in the fantasy world. And lo and behold, when you know it. It's Israeli-made Uzis. <laughs> yes. Oh my God! And this ends up. This is so wild. So they 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 they're like traveling on this like weird little battery-powered uh uh train yeah. that Morgan has had built, and they see all sorts of like uh crazy, kooky, creepy things out in the irradiated wastelands. There's like these giant balls of fire that are like rolling around on the horizon and shit. Yeah, because it's it's the uh. I, I assume that's the uh, the nuclear tests. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. That's like the echo of white sands. Maybe they say that. Maybe not. But it, that's what I took from it. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. So they, they sort of get through all this. And then as they're getting kind of closer to to the West Coast and uh, uh, the place where the talisman is, because the other thing here is that this is like total magical quest logic, right? Uh, uh, Jack is just kind of being yanked across the, the continent by like the pull of the talisman, right? Mm-hmm. He can he can feel it more the closer he gets. Um. And eventually they're like coming in and there's a whole bunch of rogue wolves. So Morgan has been like rounding up like wolves and separating them from their families and like training them to be soldiers. And it's implied that maybe this is what Elroy is or was that mm-hmm. like when a wolf turns evil, it stops being a werewolf and maybe becomes aware of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like a whole like battalion of these dudes uh, waiting uh, for Richard and Jack Uh <laughs> And so there's just this maniacal scene of these two 12 year old boys on a little battery powered train, like coming in with Uzis, yes. <laughs> like shooting all of these like werewolves and who are obliterating uh, the I mean, look, if if this is the 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 space between the Midwest and California and it's a desert and there are mm-hmm. people who live there. By fantasy logic, we know that these who these people are, right? Like these the the people who are put in this position are Native Americans. Mm-hmm. They got right this this is reservations, yeah. right? This is like Oklahoma. Oh, right, because this is the territory, right, 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 right. And this is yeah, like like surface this a little bit more, right? Like there's just like a whole like the the fantasy of the of the fantasy world here, right? Of the territories is like indefinite like colonial frontier right yes. what if america in the 19th century lasted forever yeah so the, yes so like the analog here and i don't think it's intentional in any kind of way but like if the schematic applies right if like the logic they've given us is something we're supposed to play out that these like irradiated um uh guerrilla tactics uh shrieking murderers are are the standards for indigenous Americans, and they are just these two 12 year old boys are just blasting them with Uzis as they like literally drive by. They yeah. are it it is like truly some like nightmarish uh horror writer logic going on here. Mm-hmm. It's also boring. 
Like, you know, I, I, that's probably beside the point of what I just made. But, like, just to be frank, it sucks. It's, like, not fun to read either. Um, yeah. You know, there's no plot to it. It's just, yep, more of these people, like, show up and they're, like, on the bluff. You know, it's very much that, like, 19th century image that gets recycled into the filmmaking of the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s of, like, you look up onto the bluff and there's, like... Uh, you know, a Native American with a uh, uh, on a horse, right? Like on mm-hmm. a painted horse with a painted face, and they like disappear. Where are they? We got to be on the lookout. It's a straight up like cowboys uh, kind of narrative to it, and mm-hmm. uh, it sucks. Yep. Uh, so they they eventually get to uh, uh, Point Venuti, I think is what it is called. I think I'm saying that right, and if not, I don't care. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's like some small town in California, and there is this point, is where things point get Venuti listeners rise up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. It it, it. it. This is where it gets kind of confusing because there's oh, a big hotel there. This is where it gets there. confusing, Michael. This <laughs> is the point where you get confused. <laughs> I, I followed everything up until now. <laughs> So there's this hotel, this black hotel, as they call it. Um, and it's a it's surprise. It's a big evil hotel that is like black, right? Painted black. Uh, it's got all these like weird weather vanes on the roof. And um, it, in, in its own way, it's a, a presentiment of the black house from black house <laughs> that we'll talk about in, in like a two decades. Um, but um, uh Jack sees it and like he knows a couple things. One, the talisman is there. It's inside this place. Mm -hmm. Um, It's calling to him. Um, And it's also like this hotel is the twinner somehow of the hotel of the the one where his mother's staying in New Hampshire, which just is totally against the logic of twinners as it's been presented up until this point. Like they don't live on opposite coasts. (laughs) Yeah, it's just trying to get a little too fancy. It's also called they're both the Alhambra, right? Um, no, uh, the, the one in New Hampshire is the Alhambra and I can't remember what the one on the West coast is, but it's like, it's similar. Um, uh, but yeah, I love the like concept of the Alhambra. Yeah. Like, like what's going, that it's like, because it's been storing this thing, it's the talisman is kind of poison and the Mm -hmm. hotel itself is like swollen and, and bulking up, you know, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, that kind of thing, because it, it mm-hmm. in and of itself is like a black hole trap, you know, mm-hmm. it's there to do it. This is the Dark Tower. I mean, th- right. this is, you know, quite literally the way that that gets talked about over the next couple Stephen King novels or, you know, King Dark Tower novels and then gets retconned slash transformed as they go later on. But if you think about like what the fairies or whatever they're called, the the doctors say in Insomnia before that mm-hmm. stuff kind of gets thrown out too very similar to what's going on here right the 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 alhambra or not the alhambra the the black hotel it's a trap you know and there's the 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 world beyond all all worlds the infinite power is within it but you know Mm -hmm. it's a big test to get through into it it's walking into mordor that kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh but it's cool like i i think this part of the novel is like one of the few things that works Yep, it's this this is the entire segment is actually really cool. Like uh, as Jack kind of approaches, he gets a stronger sense of the talisman. And that's where he realizes like explicitly like, oh, this this thing is the talisman is the uh, the intersection point or the axis of all possible worlds. Right. It's not just uh, this world and the territories. There are, uh, you know, as as someone once said, other worlds than even these. Mm. Uh 
and they all kind of intersect or get intertwined here with the talisman, which is this uh, artifact of immense power and sort of a great beauty that is nestled in the center of, uh, you know, uh, mask off Overlook Hotel. Right. If the Overlook Hotel got its way in The Shining, you get the sense that it would have become something like this place uh, where it's like and I said in the notes, right, uh, did Peter and Steve invent Dark Souls? Because that's what it's like, right? It's described as kind of this like massive hulking Dark Souls style location. And then once uh, 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 Jack gets in, he has to fight like this undead knight or like a series of undead knights who are kind of implied to be like people who maybe came in seeking the talisman and then like fell to the the, the, the evil influences. Uh, There's something really weird and interesting happening here where despite the talisman being nominally good, there's this uh, almost stated uh, claim that it accretes like evil around it. Like the the hotel has become bad and evil because like the hotel wants the talisman. It wants to keep mm-hmm. it. And, and in some ways, right, the, the hotel is kind of like Gollum <laughs> with yeah, the ring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there's uh, there's like that spider. Like so Jack goes into the hotel and there's all these rooms he goes through and there's like a dining room he walks through and there's like this big gross looking spider like up in the rafters and he's like man that's a really freaky spider and then the spider talks yeah like it's got like a tiny little voice and it's like no no you'll never have it <laughs> yeah i don't know what's up with it. i assume that was some sort of reference that i wasn't getting but maybe it's just like the golemization of the of the architecture it's got to be able to speak so you really know it's a golem right well and that's that my thought was like oh that maybe that used to be a person right yeah like that's a person who came here seeking the talisman and then thought, oh, if I never leave the hotel, then no one will ever take the talisman from me. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, doing my little headcanon there. Yeah, you got uh, sometimes you got to do some work to like make the thing go. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, basically they get here and they meet. They uh, so uh, is P- Parkus is here, right? Not Speedy. Right. It, or- well, I'm, isn't it both? No, only one. I, no. Maybe it's in, in the guise of Speedy because he's got a twinner, right? Yeah. So, I, so I guess Speedy's here, and he's been like hyper irradiated. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Well, so that's the thing is, it's like, well, he made his way across the United States too. You, you, you. Uh, big question mark about why they couldn't have come together because. Uh, I, I hate to break it to you, but uh, Speedy Parker could have rented a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he just driven. But yep. um, anyway, uh, they so he's here. And yeah, the idea is like, oh, shit, he's like gone through it. And like Morgan of Oris has, has attacked him because we, we get these kind of sections of the novel we haven't really talked about because they don't matter. But we get these sections of the novel where we are going into Morgan's POV and we're getting all this information. We learn that. Morgan uh, killed Jack when he was a child, basically, and only through, like, divine grace did someone notice that Jack wasn't breathing. He was, like, smothered mm-hmm. in the in the cradle by mm-hmm. uh, Morgan Sloat. Morgan Sloat killed Jack's dad. He had uh, Sunlight Gardener or uh, Osmond shoot him in a hunching mm-hmm. accident. Their, like, other buddy who was, like, their lawyer who has no impact on the novel whatsoever and could have been written out very easily. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we get a full 50 pages dedicated to him at various points. Um, he got murdered by Morgan. So we get this, this picture of like Morgan is like a truly dastardly dude doing all this stuff. He, he's a Randall flag for sure. Mm-hmm. He, and over on the other side, uh, Morgan of has been doing similar stuff when he, uh, his son was killed, was drowned. 
yeah um when uh when uh, when uh, a million years ago <laughs> when they mm-hmm. were kids and so richard is just like jack in that he is singular right there's no equivalent mm-hmm. for him in the territories which means they can both enter the black hotel um and like play the game that, that is involved here um and morgan avoris kind of uses that event or that that really inspires him to um start taking a bunch of power which is why he is like a power in the west of that mm-hmm. world um i think we didn't talk about that that is is cool uh is that morgan sloat in our world has like a fleet of planes and cars and you know he's, he's a rich guy in the 80s he can yes, get around right. he's, he's, he's doing little bumps of cocaine yeah yeah constantly yeah and there's a lot of description about that and uh you know uh interesting but uh Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder who was doing a bunch of cocaine when this came out, but mm-hmm. um, and, and this is being written and was writing 700 page novels, 800 page novels that he was telnetting across the United States, <laughs> um, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. But uh, we but in the territories, it's uh, Morgan of Oris's conveyance, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like it's it is it's some dark soul shit really. It's like this massive like house on wheels essentially or this fortress on wheels mm-hmm. that's like dragged by a team of 20 horses and they just run the horses till they drop and then they get new horses. Um you know mm-hmm. it's 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 the most like uh power guzzling, you know, uh smokestack spewing thing you can have in medieval fantasy territory land. It's rad. It's like a cool thing. Right. And the way that it's described, like this is maybe a weird pool, but like when, when whenever like Jack sees it like moving in the distance in my head, I imagine um, uh, the Wicked Witch of the West music from like the Wizard of Oz, especially like when uh, what's her face is like writing like the woman who becomes the witch in Oz is like writing her little bike around. And it's like, do, 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 like, that's what this is like yeah. is Jack looks to the horizon and he just sees like this horrific black like massive carriage with all of these frothing horses like barreling down yeah it's cool and and one of them too is it's i I, one of the times when it appears he just feels it and can like see it in his mind's eye oh because of course jack has the shining too we Uh forgot to talk about that but just just by the way like every uh uh, young beautiful boy with a heart of gold who is gonna persevere in stephen king's work from here on out they all have the shining Mm -hmm. just fyi but so uh all of this is coming to a head uh, they're all showing up in uh, outside the Black Hotel. They're like circling it in, you know, it's kind of shop style. You know, it's all these like wolves in our world who are spilling out of like black vans and shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like ready to go. So as soon as they come out, they're going to uh, to kill them. And they kind of just leave Speedy Parker like face down in, on the beach. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, seems- hey, Jack, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like he's like straight up dead, but he is not. Um, mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe he is, but, uh, anyway, they go in and yeah, they fight a bunch of dark souls enemies who like do laborious, uh, swings that uh-huh. Jack has to counter time with his own attacks. Yes. And like, <laughs> while this is happening, they're also like porting between worlds. Like yeah, every time yeah. there's like one guy with like a big mace or whatever. And like every time he hits the wall, Jack realizes that they've like switched into a slightly different world. Like they're in a hallway, they're in a hallway that's got like a slightly different layout. Uh, they're actually like on the masts of a ship right it keeps like sort of like things keep bleeding into and out of each other in a way that's really cool yeah because the black hotel is is like if if the talisman is um 
you know, the kind of fulcrum of all universes or all worlds in the universe, then the Black Hotel is kind of this like cape that's around it. And it's everywhere. You know, it's in mm-hmm. every it's it's holding the talisman in all of these worlds at one time. And so it has like a million permutations to it. It's cool. I mean, and it's it's ideas that Steve is going to keep going back to over and over again. Um, but the, uh, this is such a clear, you know, what you were saying at the beginning of the episode, right? Like so much of the Dark Tower is here. So much of the Dark Tower's metaphysics are in the past or in the last hundred pages of this novel mm-hmm. of like, what what are the practical realities of looking at the fulcrum and, and dealing with and protecting and keeping the fulcrum of all po- possible worlds away from those who would control it? Um, mm-hmm. And good God, it eventually, you know, in the Dark Tower, it turns into like a legal drama around that. Yes. A time traveling legal drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's kind of shocking. Co written by there. John Grisham. <laughs> Basically. Uh, <laughs> um, and so it's kind of weird to think here that, like, oh, yeah, it's about two, uh, one dying kid, because Richard here is also like irradiated and he's got like bugs flying out of his body and shit. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, one, doing a Dark Souls fight, he's uh-huh. doing Sin's Fortress. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, on their way to to control it. But anyway, they get in there and they touch it and they can have it. And it's like a David Cronenberg squishy thing. Yeah. And did you find uh, that odd? I, I yes. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think it's weird that it's just called the talisman. <laughs> it's yeah, just such yeah, a. It's yeah. like okay, like it, like it is. Like I called it in my summary, a MacGuffin, right? Oh, yeah, like it, yeah, yeah. it is just like such a pure, like we need a thing. Like it is not only the intersection of all possible worlds, right? It is the intersection of all possible plot lines. Like it's just a thing that happens so a plot can happen or it's, it's a thing that exists so a plot can happen around it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, he gets it. He goes outside. I don't even remember how Morgan. Uh, so uh, in the middle of all this, like during like the Uzi, Uzi Khan, uh, 1984, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jack, they murder um, uh, the child, Osmond's child, this like big mm-hmm. mutant monster. They shoot it with an Uzi a bunch of times. Um, they uh, Osmond gets killed somehow. Uh, Sunlight Gardner's here and he's got like a flak jacket on. He's looking mm-hmm. wild as hell. He gets murdered. Um, but I don't remember how they kill Morgan Sloat, honestly. I don't remember either. I think doesn't he like get a, a like evaporated by his own lightning rod or something? Oh yeah, he comes through with the lightning rod. Hold mm-hmm. on, let me, let me. I'm gonna. You know, this is the this is really a thing. I didn't I didn't finish reading this very long ago, and I cannot tell you what the denouement for this character is. Well, it feels like such pure formality. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's just like, hey, we're we're going we're going through it. But let's let's see how Morgan Sloat uh, dies. Um, okay, this is the Wikipedia summary inside the Black Castle, right? Because that's its kind of like form. Jack battles stone suits of armor defending the talisman and takes it, triggering an earthquake. Yeah, because it's kind of exploding. Disbanding the rest of the werewolves who allied with Morgan Sloat. Jack then realizes there are multiple worlds beside the two he's familiar with. He has the same thing that, um, this is not in the summary, but he experiences the same thing Roland does when he, like, has that mind-bending thing at the end of uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. the gunslinger. He's like, the whole world is in a purple leaf of grass. No. He heals Richard with the talisman, kills Gardner on the castle steps, and faces off with Morgan on the beach. Eventually, he kills Sloat. Yeah, I think the lightning rod explodes. Yeah. It doesn't even say it in the summary on Wikipedia. But yeah, I believe that he u- tries to use his lightning rod and it backfires. 
and because mm-hmm. uh, evil always defeats itself exactly and because he's now like a skittering screeching creature in the way that Osmond becomes in the way that uh, um, uh, what do you call it um, uh, sunlight does sunlight gardener mm-hmm. he's like screeching about bad boys and all this kind of stuff they all become the exact same character um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it sucks and then he goes and saves everybody in the novel over. Right. They like they have to. He, he also heals a uh, uh, Parkus uh, on the beach. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> this is actually so funny. It's like, OK, so we had just had uh, 800 pages of getting from one coast to the other. <laughs> now to go back. <laughs> and it turns out like uh, uh, somehow like Parkus arranges for uh, the, the wolf two that you've already mentioned to show up with a car and just valet them back to New Hampshire where mm-hmm. uh, Jack, you know, cures his mother. And then we get like the conclusion where uh, like the one sentence epilogue or what, whatever it is, um, where in Laura Delosian, who is that's the name of uh, the queen of the territories in Laura Delosian's chamber, uh, you know, the queen opened her eyes. Yeah, it's uh, also another great name. Laura yes, Delosian. it is. That is a really good name. Uh, I think that uh, those don't feel like Stephen King at all. Those those also feel like Straub. And Straub is uh, very bad at making human, like, in our world character names, I think, or they're at least hard for me to remember and kind of resonate with, because, like you're saying, they're so purposely kind of literary and, and unreal feeling. But mm-hmm. that makes him really good at the fantasy names, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like Morgan Sloat is like a Straub name, too, because that's like a that's like such a good fantasy novel villain name. Yes, it is. It's great. Sorry, I'm trying to look here. If you want to filibuster a little bit about uh, what's going on here, I'm going to read what happens to. Uh... Oh, you know what? Uh, check this out. Um, did you remember that Jack starts yelling rainbow rainbow? Yes. Uh, when he's <laughs> healing everybody. Isn't that interesting? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Some sort of that, wizard's rainbow? Merlin's rainbow? Mm-hmm. Rainbow, rainbow. Um, it's it's such an interesting thing to have a character shout. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, the talisman glowed on the beach, snow melting down one sweetly gravied side in droplets, and in each droplet was a rainbow, and in that moment Jack knew the staggering cleanliness of giving up the thing which was required. Right, so like the 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 true way of defeating Morgan Sloat is not to hold tightly onto the world, but to let it go. Wah wah wah. Uh, no more <laughs> slaughter. Go on. That's my that's my fantasy goofball voice. Wah 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 wah. <laughs> uh, go on and break it if you can. He said, "I'm sorry for you." It was that which truly destroyed Morgan Sloat. If he had retained a shred of rational thought, right, evil undoes, undoes itself, he would have unearthed a stone from the unearthly snow and smashed the talisman, as it could have been smashed in its simple, unjacketed vulnerability. Instead, he turned the key on it, which is the lightning rod. As he did so, his mind was filled with loving, hateful memories of Jerry Bloodsoe and Jerry Bloodsoe's wife, Jerry Bloodsoe, whom he had killed, and Nita Bloodsoe, who should have been Lily Cannavaugh, or, uh, uh, Kavanaugh. None of this matters. Uh, yeah. Lily, who had slapped him so hard his nose bled the one time when drunk he had tried to touch her. Fire sang out. Green-blue fire spanning out from the cheap jack barrel of the tin key. It arrowed out of the talisman, or at the tar- talisman, struck it, spread over it, turning into a burning sun. Every color was there for a moment. For a moment, every world was there. Then it was gone. The talisman swallowed the fire from Morgan's key. 
ate it whole. Darkness came back. Jack's feet slid out from under him and he sat down with a thud on Speedy Parker's limply splayed calves. Speedy made a grunting noise and twitched. There was a two-second lag when everything held static, and then fire suddenly blew back out of the talisman in a flood. Jack's eyes opened wide in spite of his frantic, tortured thought. It'll blind you, Jack. It'll. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and altered geography of point the and the altered geography of Point Venuti was lit up as if God of uh, the God of all universes had bent forward to snap a picture. Jack saw saw the the Agincourt. That's the name of the black. That's it. The yeah. Agincourt slumped in the Alhambra and the Agincourt. What a great. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some some real brilliant stuff here. But Jack saw the Asian Corps slumped and half destroyed. He saw the collapsed highlands that were now the lowlands. He saw Richard on his back. He saw Speedy lying on his belly with his face turned up to one side or turned to one side. Speedy was smiling. Then Morgan Slope was driven backward and enveloped in a field of fire from his own key, fire that had been absorbed inside the talisman as the flashes of light from Sunlight Gardener's telescopic sight had been absorbed and which was returned to him a thousandfold. A hole opened in worlds, a hole the size of a tunnel leading into the Oatly, and Jack saw Sloat, his handsome brown suit burning, one skeletal, tallowy hand still clutching the key, driven through the hole. Sloat's eyes were boiling in their sockets, but they were wide. They were aware! And so Morgan Avoris gets, like, murdered in the same moment, too. But mm-hmm. not to read the whole section, but look, that that really is the metaphysics of the Dark Tower, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. like there are all these echoes and also, you know, the, the, the way that evil believes it has to intersect with all this fantasy bullshit is wrong. Like, they have the wrong angle on this whole project. And that undoes everyone. I mean, that that I'm not spoiling the Dark Tower by saying that is how the Dark Tower uh, pans out. And honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, as maybe why so many people are so disappointed in it is that it does not, you know, kind of compound together as a science fiction project in the way that it sets itself out to be. It neatly wraps itself up in the bow in the same way that the talisman does. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not particularly fulfilling, I would say. But we've got, good God, three years before we talk about that, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, we'll get there. So sorry not to read that whole section, but I think that it is both important for us to know how Morgan Sloat died, because how else would we get along in the world? And, uh, you know, I think that's enlivening for some themes we're going to come back to over and over again over the next little while. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if there's anything else sort of mainline that I want to touch on other than I I gestured at this um, Mm -hmm. sort of some like homoerotic subtext or what have you. there and and this is going to come up, I think, a little bit in your Kingism, uh, so maybe that's this can be our transition point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so. <clears throat> oh wait, can I say one last thing? Sure. Uh, Jack's mom also tells him to find some damn bebop. <laughs> <laughs> it's on page twenty-five. Yes. Find us some yep. bop, Jackie, and shut up. Yep. Um, so, uh, as I already said, there's like a a lot of, like a lot of this book is about, uh, intense relationships between like boys, right? Two, two young boys, like traveling alone together. Uh, and a little bit of a love story between Richard and Jack for sure. Yep. Um, uh, and sort of like Wolf as like, uh, I don't know, some sort of like anticipation or presentiment of like feelings about Richard and like the fondness that, that Jack has for Richard. Um, all, all this stuff. There's also this really interesting and very Straubian, in my opinion, kind of thing where we learn that the, uh, the, the history of, uh, Morgan and Jack's father, um, whose name I don't remember, uh, uh, they, Bilbo 
<laughs> Bilbo, yeah. Um, yeah Bilbo's they were theater majors. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they so uh, they couldn't hack it. Right. They they were like theater majors. They wanted to be like actors. Uh, this is like this is such a thing that you would never in a million years get a Stephen King protagonist. Um, I think who was yeah. like a theater major, right? Yeah, theater is artifice and is a fallen of the real world. And the real mm-hmm. world is uh, working class men in factories in rural Maine. Yes. Uh, so uh, there's this interesting like subtext where like there are these there are these guys who are theater majors in in like the 60s uh, live in some experimental lifestyles. There's a lot talked about like the, the weed that they're smoking and stuff. Um, and one of them shows the other the way to get to like this uh, uh, this magical other world that is like their secret that they keep from everyone else. And then the other guy uh, ends up becoming power hungry and like destroying that relationship um like by having the other uh, the other guy murdered right uh and then uh i'll i'll let you take the lead on on the kingism here uh because when we get kind of richard's flashback to his like trauma of of his like brief encounters with the territories when he's a child Mm -hmm. this just feels so weighted and loaded i don't know what to do with it uh but like it happens because when uh morgan his father goes into the territories because jack also has these kinds of memories of his father kind of like disappearing in weird ways for for um at weird times Mm -hmm. uh uh for morgan this involves going into the closet yeah well he goes into the wardrobe (laughs) yeah right it's, but yeah it's, yeah it is very literalized i cannot believe this is your thing because yeah also what what i'm into here but uh yeah it's rad he goes in there and it's it's toe dash space in there oh yeah yeah no, it that's sucks awesome. it's, it's not cool it's bad yeah uh so like yeah what happened i don't know if there was like a line you wanted to read or anything but this was also like one of my favorite parts so it is also probably my kingism yeah but yeah he definitely goes into the closet and uh doesn't come out i mean basically right he goes into the closet and he finds that so difficult to navigate that he uh suppresses all imagination for the rest of his life (laughs) until it begins to kill him right like i i don't know if it's a tortured metaphor necessarily and i don't know how I don't have a good sense of in 1982, 83, 84, how much Peter Straub and Stephen King might be aware of the metaphor of the closet. I don't I don't yeah. know how much that's like in in popular consciousness. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it absolutely could just be accidental, but it's like hard not to remark upon, I guess, if you're me. Yeah, no, I mean, you look at it and it's right there. But yeah, he like so his father disappears. And, and so for Jack, that's this like amazing experience of like his dad goes away and he comes back and he's like, he comes from down the block. Where's he been going? My dad's cool. He's the king in another world. Right. That's like what it plays off into. Um, mm-hmm. But basically what's happening for Sloat is Sloat's going into the territories on his own at the same time, but he's getting up to dastardly shit. He's like, you know, he's, he's collaborating with his buddy who lives across there, you know, with his twinner who lives across the, the world and everything he does is in shadow, you know, of, mm-hmm. of the King, you know, he doesn't know he's, it's very Randall flaggy. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, so he goes into that, uh, into the closet and what's in there is like, a bad place you know it's full of monsters and creatures and critters it's like some sort of dungeon maybe mm-hmm. and he just has to cower in there until he like falls out basically i it, it's mm-hmm. it's a little bit narnia like i mean it literally is like 
what if Narnia sucked? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, but I just really liked I, I don't have a page number, so I couldn't go back to, to read it for the thing. But that's my favorite part of like what's going on here, which is like it's this um, very Lovecraftian description without resolution. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of bad kind of creepy stuff happening. And then the emotional reaction to it, it feels very Stephen King and not very Peter Straub to me. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's what you said, it's it's the two dash space, which is the thing that's going to show up in the Dark Tower uh, later on. But it's 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 the the darkness of uh, the interdimensional void where all monstrosities spring forth. Right. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that would be uh, also kind of my kingism because it does. It feels very kingy. And I would say what feels if, if there's anything about it that's a little strawbian, um, it is the fact that it is so like clearly an invocation of Narnia. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I think if I bet there was probably a line here where, uh, Steve wrote in something about like later on, Richard tried to read the Chronicles of Narnia and found it distasteful for some reason. Cause he can't help himself. He has to flag it like that. And I bet like, uh, I bet a uh, Straub stepped in and was like, we can let this one go, Steve. I think the reader will put it together. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, uh, the next segment then. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we didn't even talk about like what the hell my favorite king is is kingism is. Yeah, we did. But, you yeah, don't have but, one. Well, I mean, because it's the same one as yours. Mm-hmm. What's uh, the best part of the book? High watermark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those are just the places that feel like the most kingy, the best, right? What do you mm-hmm. come for Stephen King for? It's this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. What in the Kingiverse? The next segment uh, is where we trace out some of the connections between what we've just read and other elements of the Stephen King uh, uh, fictional universe. And we've already done quite a bit of that. Uh, it's sort of necessary just to like contextualize what the hell is going on in this novel. Um, what are the so like we've already said the, the Black Hotel and the Axis of All Possible Worlds. This shows up again uh, in Dark Tower uh, as the Dark Tower. Um Point Venuti is described by Jack as a place where, quote, reality had been sanded thin, um, which is another thing that shows up in the Dark Tower. The idea that uh, barriers between worlds can become thin and then things can start like leaking back and forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a thinny. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, What is uh, this one you have about the, the tunnel? Uh, the, uh, when he's going through that there, Oh, you don't remember this like straight up 50 page section where he goes through the tunnel right before he gets to the pitcher plant. Oh yes. No, I do remember it. I just, I want you to talk about it. (laughs) Oh, so, uh, it's, uh, the, it's, it's, uh, Steve going back to the well of what he wrote in the stand, but which is not super in the stand, uh, you know, or at least gets played out way, way bigger in, uh, in the stand revised, right. That, Mm -hmm. That we're coming up on, but it's definitely this kind of thing of like, you're completely in the dark. It's a place where it also is kind of a thinny, right? Because he, he, presents it as if maybe there's like a homeless or an unhoused guy or there's like a creature from another world there. Elroy might be there. It's a little unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little presage of uh, what's going on with um, what with Elroy. But I, it's kind of a, a theme that goes back to and, and going back to the Slow Mutants chapter from The Gunslinger. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of uh, going into a long space where there's a light at the end of the tunnel in the dark is like a thing Stephen King is going to keep going back to. Uh, it's this repeated um, theme. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting and sort of direct reference uh, is that uh, at the end of the novel, at the climax, rather, when uh, Jack grabs the talisman, right, he finally has it. Um, we get this big telescope out 
uh, a very Kingian telescope out where like all of the characters that have been encountered or uh, in some ways uh, indirectly encountered uh, throughout this entire ordeal, like they all like people that uh, Jack was hitchhiking with, right? People who gave him rides. Uh, they suddenly know that that little boy that I gave a ride to who I was worried about, uh, mm-hmm. he he got what he was going for, right? He's safe. He did it. He made it. All of these other characters like uh, have like uh, like the, there's a ripple effect outward of, of Jack uh, obtaining the talisman where everyone else becomes kind of aware of it in some way or another. Um, and one of the things that happens is that at Richard's school, at the Thayer school, the headmaster, who, by the way, his like other form is a monkey wearing a mortarboard, a uh, weird little echo of uh, a character who shows up in the never ending story that we just talked about for the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes. Um, the headmaster like has a fit or something while he is meeting with a father of one of the students who is there to complain. And the student is named George Hatfield. George Hatfield, of course, is, uh, the student from the, or, uh, the shining that Jack, uh, beats up. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Dang. So, boy school uh, boy school. <laughs> yeah. Boy school to boy school. Uh, apparently the, the like, nearly 10 years that have elapsed since the shining was published <laughs> he he's still in school and still uh i don't know getting up to bad stuff if his dad's there to meet with the headmaster um yeah weird. so yeah that happens and then of course there's a this is a there gets a there's a direct sequel to this book later on in black house mm-hmm. yeah i don't think there's uh i was trying to think of other king kingy stuff but i think that must be it i mean i'm sure there's other stuff let us know let us know about other stuff tweet at us Twitter.com slash range touch. Let us know. Yeah. Uncle Stevie's mixtape, or I guess, you know, Pete and Stevie's mixtape this time, uh, is where we uh, go through all of the songs that were mentioned in what we just read and we review them. Uh, we've got kind of a, a lengthy one this time. Uh, let's get to it. Cameron, you're first up. Uh, we got Billy Grammer. Gotta travel on. Uh, one star. This is the kind of shit that would play in Stand By Me. <laughs> uh, this is a song that plays at the Oatly Tap. Uh, it is Kenny Rogers. Um, his song Reuben James. This is one star. This this is. I mean, it sounds like a Kenny Rogers song, but like the song itself is just. It's not good. It's it's uh it's a song from the perspective of a a white speaker, uh, thinking about a black man that he knew in his youth named Reuben James, and no one liked him because it was the sharecropping South, and he was a black man. But this black man was always very uh, uh personable and noble, and and gave me an example of how to live my life. Oh, Reuben James, I'll never forget you. You still till the fields of my heart. What the fuck? Yeah, bad stuff. How many stars? One star. Okay. Dexter Gordon, Daddy Plays the Horn. Uh, Three stars, bunch of horn honking. You know I love that. Uh, You know I love honk. mm -hmm. You know I love... (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny how uh, Discord's noise canceling cuts that out because (laughs) I just hear like... What I hear is not what you're hearing, dear listener. What I hear is like the most pitiful. <sighs> yeah, you hear the actual like uh, uh, hoof coming out of the wind. Yeah. Out of the, horn. <laughs> uh, uh, the next song is Rapture by Blondie. 
Uh, one star. My God, this song sucks. Uh, it's way too long. It's like six and a half minutes long. Are you telling me the number one, the first rap number one single isn't good? Uh, is, is Rapture the first yeah. rap yeah. number one single? Yes. Yep. After, what? Yeah, after Blondie, after they were like hanging out in New York and like watching hip hop like start. Um, the first rap number one single is Rapture. I'm like 99.9% sure. Let me let me look it up and make sure. This sounds like a disco song, Cameron. It is, I know. Okay. I know the song. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but it is it is explicitly rap. Really? <laughs> the, I'm doing some, yeah. Um, <sighs> uh, their last single to reach number one. It was the first number one single in the United States to feature rap vocals because of that like weird thing in oh, like the two thirds yeah. mark. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So they're but yeah, for that. the most part, it's just like a Blondie song. Yeah. Yep. Famously. <sighs> mm-hmm. One star. <laughs> one star. Mississippi John Hurt. Uh, Louis Collins or Louis Collins. I can't, I can't remember now. I listened to it uh, and now I can't remember it, uh, which one he says, but uh, four stars. This song is really good. Uh, originally recorded in 1928. I think uh, I saw. Um, so very much, you know, kind of uh, Mississippi Delta blues uh, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, that intermediate zone between uh, that and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really hear what Bob Dylan is ripping off. Uh, this it's it's you, it, like it's uh, it's bad that uh, <laughs> Bob Dylan got to become Bob Dylan just doing this music, um, and uh, you know <sighs> that we associate that exclusively with him rather than the people who made it. Mm-hmm. I'm I am uh, I I'm, I know I'm the first person to ever say that, but uh, <laughs> it really is notable when you just sit and listen to the music. But uh, this, this is good, good yeah. song. Uh, the next song is When the Red Red Robin Comes Bob Bob Bobbin Along. Uh, this is given no specific artist in the text because I actually think it's a song that Snowball sings. Mm. Um, and it's kind of a, a jazz standard. So uh, I listen to a whole bunch of versions. This is also a Straub thing, by the way. This song shows up in a couple of places in Straub's books, like Floating Dragon that I uh, mentioned earlier. Like, I know it it shows up there. Um mm-hmm. So I listen to to various versions. I listen to like Louis Armstrong. I listen to Bing Crosby. I listen to Doris Day. Um, there's an Al Jolson version from like the 1920s. Uh, this song is fascinating because no two artists have recorded it in the same way. It's always like the lyrics are kind of different. Um, but it, in general, like good song, four stars. I like it. It's got a, a, a fun uh, like chorus. There's something fun to say about when the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along. Sure. Let me try it. When the red, red robin comes bob, bob, bobbing along. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I did uh, Fats Waller's Your Feet's Too Big. I'm going to give that two stars. It's uh, it's too rude. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that. Uh, I had Fats Waller's Ain't Misbehavin'. Uh, four stars. This is a really good song. I had Fats Waller's Jitterbug Waltz. One star. It's on the Bioshock soundtrack. <laughs> I had Fats Waller's Keeping Out of Mischief Now. Remember what I said earlier about Peter Straub liking jazz? Um, uh, this song's pretty good. I'll, I'll give it three stars. I don't like it as much as Ain't Misbehaving, but uh, it, it's it's pretty good. I had Blue, Blue Oyster Cult's Tattoo Vampire. Uh, two stars. Uh, my only reaction to this is, what the fuck? <laughs> like... Please listen to the song. Just give it a Google. 
Tattoo Vampire, Blue Oyster Cult. It, it's, I don't even know if it's music. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's just, it's a lot of like dad rock sounds happening. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it doesn't seem to have like a, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's not very good. Two stars. Um, so the next song is, uh, called I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it is it is apparently hugest question marks imaginable mm-hmm. uh, recorded by someone named Randy Hanslick MD cool like who cool... may or may not be an actual medical doctor I don't know uh the, the the artist is not named in the text again it's just like the song the title is named uh and this is want to take a wild guess at what this song is Cameron uh, probably about an alcoholic doctor. If you ask me, it's some kind of a first person song. It's, it's, it's gotta be in those like 1960s, 1970s, like, uh, pre weird Al parody songs that are just like comedy things. It's so funny. You, you say this, it's a Dr. Demento song, yeah, yeah, right? Rad. Like this, this song was uh, known for being a Dr. Demento track that he would put on a lot, um, got it, got that it. I discovered. So yeah, it's, it's like a, a sort of like country Western comedy song. Uh, about you know rather having a bottle in front of you than a frontal lobotomy um, i was I, I think actually when this was in the 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 book when, when i ran upon it i was thinking about it but when i was a kid i had like a ta- a cassette tape that was just just those kinds of songs mm-hmm. <laughs> just like this has come up before <laughs> yeah those weird story songs listen to it all the time so every time it comes up i'm like yeah hell yeah, yeah. that's music mm-hmm. to me this is the good <laughs> shit well, I, I count it as uh, two stars. It's not as it's not as good as the uh, the Weird Al stuff that'll come yeah. later for Demento. Yeah, Weird Al really just obliterated that whole thing until we got to um, uh, Rap and Yoda. When, yes, when we got to like Napster, like mm-hmm. that whole universe blew up again, and then we got mm-hmm. YouTube parody songs, which was like a real step down. But mm-hmm. I had uh, Bobby Darren's Long Line Rider, which I'd never heard before, and uh, it's four stars. It's some that, this is the good dad rock. Mm-hmm. There's just some stuff happening. Is it maybe about a train or something? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, help plot. <laughs> uh, my song and the final song is some more of that good, good dad rock. It's uh, Run Through the Jungle by CCR, four stars. You know, I saw this on the list and I was listening to all these songs and then I went and listened to Run Through the Jungle for no reason. It's just good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, good, it's good Wolf's song. favorite song. Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. But. <laughs> Uh yeah oh that's right because when when Wolf Two is driving that car, yes he's just listening to Run Through the Jungle on repeat <laughs> at maximum volume. Yes. The, the look we didn't talk about this but yeah as you were saying before right the like the come down on this novel right of like going back and healing his mother it's they just travel across the United States and there's all this stuff going on and everything's like hunky dory and it's like you know the the uh, the slow high five at the end of the movie. Uh-huh. Except it's 60 pages of, of slow high five. And it includes a lot of detailed information about like eating Slim Jims and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like where they stop to eat. And they like eat Bur- Burger King again or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Anyway, who cares? Uh, interesting stuff. But uh, that's it. That's the end of this episode. Yeah, that that wraps it up. Uh, We will catch you back here next time, uh, next month on Just King Things, when we will be discussing uh, the next Richard Bachman book, 1984's Thinner, um, which also has the distinction, I believe I've mentioned, of being the first Stephen King book I ever read. Mm. So this will be interesting. I don't know where I read that in my Stephen. Certainly not the first, but definitely not the last. Mm. 
How about that? That's the <laughs> easiest thing I've ever said in my life. <laughs> uh... <laughs> well, we can uh, we can ponder the mysteries. Do you have any? What was that? No, I was just going to say, uh, you know, we got to figure out who we do it for. Hmm. hmm. But uh, I think I'm maybe I'm doing it for my terminally ill mother who's a queen in another world. No, you're doing oh. it because you want to play some damn people.